This episode, we have Manville Smith on from JL Audio. No stranger to the industry at all. I can absolutely say that. And you've been with JL for quite a long stretch here. How many years now? Um, 30 something. <laughs> I was 12 when I got hired there. Yeah, You've been with JL probably as long as I've been alive. Oh, that's, that's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm 34. I started, there's really two phases to 87. it. Because I started at Speaker Warehouse, which was the retail side of the business back then. And so that was 1986. Um, and then in 1990, I moved over to the JL Audio side, which was very, very small. And that's where that whole episode began. Are, wow. do, are we allowed to just kick this off by, can you give us the... Quick, I know you've done this on other podcasts. The, the quick history of the of quick, audio. The quick history of uh, how that how that all came about, and and where you were, and what you were doing before, and yeah, well, um, when I was a little bambino, um, my daddy was a big audiophile. He always bought cool gear and had all the magazines, so that's where I kind of got the audio bug. Was just listening to music with my dad and enjoying good equipment and learning a little bit about it as a kid in college i did some um you know live sound work and i worked at the radio station in college so i got a little bit of a different exposure to a different side of of audio um did a lot of engineering work you know doing spots and doing uh live broadcasts and stuff like that and then when i left school and i ended up back in florida um I initially bounced around a couple of jobs that I really hated and I ended up uh, working with my dad for a while and I figured out that that was a really bad idea um, pretty quickly. So I started looking for, for another shitty job to you know pass the time because <laughs> I really didn't want to work for my dad just to preserve my relationship with my dad because I love my dad, but I just couldn't work for him, you know? So I saw an ad for stereo sales and I answered it and um, I was told the job had been filled and I said, no, you don't understand. I, I can really do that. And you, you want to hire me. And so impressed with my, uh, <laughs> with my persistence, he said, okay, come on in for an interview. I actually put a suit on and went in wearing a suit, which everybody laughed at because nobody wore a suit. And, and the, the business was speaker warehouse in Hollywood, Florida, which was a retail store that sold car audio, home audio, DJ audio. Um, and really was kind of a pioneer in the whole high-powered car audio scene in Florida. That was something that they got into really early. So I talked to uh, one of the owners, Jim Birch, and I talked to the other owner, and and I, I guess they I guess they liked me and said, okay, you can start on Monday. And and I came in and uh, started as, in a sales position, just learning about the products and and absorbing everything I could, and you know, trying to sell audio to people um and 
something really cool happened about a year and a half later. Um, one of our reps, uh, Alan Lundy and his partner, Bruce Terrell, they were the Rockford reps, but they also, or Alan was also our Concord rep and a couple of other lines we carried. We didn't carry Rockford. Matt's, Matt's never heard of Concord before. Seriously, Matt? As I. Oh, back in the, <laughs> back in the day when we had cassette decks, <laughs> Concord was considered really high end, but anyway, they made decent amps for the day too. <laughs> Um, 30 watt of channel powerhouses. So I, I had this conversation and he said, have you ever gone to a sound off? And I said, no, what is it? And he ex kind of explained, well, the cars all line up and there's judges and they listen to it and they look at the install and they do an RTA and all that. And, and I said, that sounds really silly. Um, having never really seen it, got to remember there was no internet back then, you know, the exposure to things that happened in other places had to happen with people who visited you who had been who had been there, you know, and that's kind of how it started. So he invited me to go to a, a car audio competition up in Palm Beach County, and uh, he offered to let me judge. And I said, I don't know what I'm doing. How can you let me judge? I said, well, you know how to run an audio control RTA, right? I said, yeah, of course. And said, so you can be the RTA judge. And so there I was at my first car audio contest. And what year was this? Oh, 1980, late 87, 88, early 88, wow. somewhere in that, somewhere in that range. So there were a lot of cars there. I was surprised at how many cars there were. There were um, probably 80 cars at this show, which was, you know, pretty good for a, for a local event. And, and some of them were really nice. And I just really didn't know what the people in the next county were building. And they were building some, some really nice stuff. And it was kind of cool. I got, I took a lot of pictures, you know, back then we had to get them developed. So it took a few days um, to show them to Lucho. But when I did, and I kind of explained to him what went on there and what the scene was, he, he said, well, let's build a car. And I said, well, yeah, okay, what the hell? Let's build a car. Now, we already had some demo cars that we used in the stores that were, like, really loud and impressive. Like, we had this Blazer that had 12 Gauss 15s in it and JBL <laughs> Pro 12s and bullet tweeters and all kinds of crazy stuff. And it would raise the dead. I mean, it was amazing. <laughs> Full range amazing, not just base amazing. This thing would, you know, would melt your eyelashes. So we had that kind of thing, but we didn't have the, an Iaska-type car, right? So I had just bought a secondhand Toyota Celica, and Lou said, what about your car? And that's kind of where it all started for, for Speaker Warehouse. We didn't read the rule book too carefully, but we built a kind of cool system. Um, it was rear stage, but a hell of a rear stage. <laughs> it had a pair of uh, JBL Pro 10-inch mids in the back with a pair of JBL slot tweeters with 50 watts of channel on it. Plenty loud. And then uh, eight uh, isobarically loaded eight-inch woofers in a ported enclosure behind that. And then in the front, I had a little pair of Bab, Bab 534, five and a quarters. <laughs> that, that was my front. So I was all excited. The thing sounded awesome. I mean, if you just forgave the fact that everything was coming from the back and, and all that, and you just listened to it and enjoyed it, and you put your Pink Floyd tape in there, and it sounded great. Drove across Alligator Alley to go to my first show on Florida's West Coast, 
got absolutely trounced because everything was coming from the back and they were explaining to me that that was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then there were a whole bunch of little install things that we had just not missed or we had missed. We, We hadn't, you know, read the rule book too carefully. So going back, I reported back to Lou and took some more pictures of other cars that were there. And then from there forward, we started to refine my car. We built a couple other cars, learning kind of how to do it um, with three or four cars that we were building. I mean, these cars at the time had fuzzy carpet and you know things of that nature. Um, but we were trying to be innovative. I mean, my car had a drawer that came out that had the amplifiers in it and it had forced air cooling. And, you know, these were exotic things. Uh, back in those days and the isobaric woofers always freaked people out because they they stuck out the outside of the enclosure etc so we were trying to do some cool things and having a lot of fun and then <clears throat> another key moment um do you guys remember a brand called gns i do i don't think matt's ever heard of it uh, no <laughs> this is this, this is this still podcast. before i was born this podcast shall be known as the education of Matt Schaefer. We might have to take the old school part out of this. And I was looking forward to this because I knew be that I would learn a lot of stuff that happened before I was born. So GNS was a California company, um, Southern Cal, and it was uh, Craig Smith and I think Gordon was the other guy, the G and the S. Anyway, Craig was friends with Lucio and had visited him and we were actually going to pick up the speaker line and they sent the demo vehicle out right and it was this um this mazda lowrider pickup truck that had an incredible installation in it i mean it was just absolutely unbelievable stitched vinyl work um you know it would not be out of place in a in a modern context you know as a, as a quality install some really crazy stuff going on in it. They had horns under the seats firing forward. So, yes. So Matt can see what a red line looks like. Uh, yeah, it had a lightning bolt. You know, <laughs> I have red, seen that before. And a red surround. So uh, this car, this truck had a level of install that we had never seen before, right? And the guy who drove it and showed it to us told us that, yeah, all the cars in California are are like this, right? So that left an impression on all of us saying, oh, boy, because we'd never been out of Florida competing, right? And we were winning pretty well in Florida at that point. We were having some success. We had some customers who had had installs done, and they were having some success. And we saw that vehicle, and we said, oh, we got to you know, take it to a whole other level if we want to be competitive, which we did uh, working for a year straight every night till midnight um weekends falling asleep with a belt sander in your hands you know you were were so tired uh crazy you know crazy amount of work and there was a group of about eight or nine guys at speaker warehouse who just said hey we're young we're stupid we don't have wives we we don't have anything better to do so (laughs) so let's do this right and we'd show up at work in the morning like dog tired and barely being able to talk but we were building some really cool stuff. We learned how to do fiberglass. We learned how to bend plexiglass. Um, we learned upholstery. Uh, we learned what to do and what not to do the hard way. There were no YouTube videos to teach you how to do it. Um, there was no easy accessible directory of suppliers that you could find the right stuff. You kind of had to go out there and search for it in a very manual way. 
but we were committed to it and we started to really upgrade these systems because if we were to compete at the next level to go regional or national we knew the cars had to be much better so that little mini truck from gns redline was another catalyst for for our our story right so these cars that we built really were impressive uh our use of fiberglass was pretty pioneering at the time uh, some of it was painted that became kind of a big fad in the 90s but you know it uh we did it in small pieces surrounded by usually vinyl or other materials um, but we had the isoplates and things like that that people were really impressed by you know the big fiberglass tubs for the isobaric woofers and all that kind of stuff um, and of course we were using this brand of woofers that you know nobody had ever heard of called jl audio and of course, JL stands for Jim and Lucio, and these were Lucio's designs that he he worked with a couple of different U.S. speaker manufacturers to develop these woofers to his standards because he didn't like what was available from other manufacturers. He thought they needed too much airspace. He thought they weren't you know properly specced for for car audio use. So we had a great little eight-inch woofer, a nice ten-inch woofer, very small lineup of product, but enough to you know build all these cars and sell a few at the store and a couple other dealers in florida what were the store. first what were the very first jl skews the first the first one i can remember was actually a power wedge which was an enclosure oh, okay and we made um it had six and a half inch peerless woofers in it with um i forget the tweeters uh so I think a three and a half inch cone tweeter on each side, but they were very compact wedge shaped enclosures, nicely finished in cloth with, um, with a mica end cap, uh, right around the same time that Steve Irby was doing the same thing in Stillwater. Mm -hmm. Um, Lucho was selling them, but Lucho, Lucho's reach was fairly short. It was really in Southern Florida that dealers were, were buying these. And there was an eight inch model and then a truck box. These, those were really the first JL audio branded products. Mm -hmm. We had woofers that were unmarked, unbranded that eventually became JL audio woofers, right? As we applied the brand some more. Uh, but it, it really was a store brand with a couple of other dealers who also, you know, bought them and carried them in South Florida. So yeah, I think the first product I can remember with an actual JL audio sticker on it was the was that original power witch it's a name we still use today for our mm -hmm. loaded uh subwoofer enclosures so so anyway uh where were we uh we uh we got involved in um in iaska more more seriously we went to regionals in 1988 did pretty well went back did some more upgrades and then 1989 we you know absolutely nuts trying to get as many points as possible to qualify early so then we could garage the cars and work on them right we wanted to qualify and have a couple of months left that never works out for various reasons but um it was a mad scramble to get the cars ready for finals the finals were in arizona pretty far from florida uh, some of these cars were drivable long distances others probably not so we hired a trucker, Buddy Belch. I'll never forget that. 
and with a big car transporter trailer. And we spent, uh, I think it was 20 hours loading the truck because the vehicles would not fit with oh, the required height clearance. Um, the big problem was we had Tommy's van, Tommy Clark's huge Econoline van that had a topper on it. And anyway, it was a nightmare to get the cars out there, but we did. And they ended up in Phoenix and we competed um, in the first IASCA finals for us. It was really the first IASCA finals. Before that, it was NACA, right? And there was no finals the previous day. There was some politics. And uh, we had, I think, um, six cars, six cars entered or seven cars entered that year in various power classes. And uh, at the end of the day, when the dust settled in that place, and there was a lot of dust on that band field in Tempe, um, we were, you know, very fortunate. We got uh, four first place trophies and the pro best of show, which was Lucho's personal car, which was a Mustang in the lowest power watt or in the lowest power class, the one to 100 class, um, all passive crossovers in that car. And that was a nightmare for me when I became the technical guy at JL Audio because everybody wanted to know how to do that. <laughs> and my answer was always, well, the first thing you need to know is that you shouldn't do that, you know, if you can possibly avoid it. But you guys won, blah, 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 blah. I said, yeah, I know, but it's only because PPI didn't make a 50-watt high current, you know. We had to use just one 100-watt high current, so that's why it ended up that way. Um, so we became known for this passive crossover thing, which was really funny because we were actually advocates for multi-amp actively crossover systems whenever you could use them, right? Um, but over the, over the course of the next few years, we won a lot of trophies in IASCA, became well-known. The JL Audio brand really leapt from that platform, right? The notoriety and the, you know, we we're all using JL Audio woofers. What's up with these? A few dealers from around the country expressed interest. We started shipping around the country. Um, so probably by 1990, by the time I moved over to JL Audio full time to be the technical guy and truck loader and unloader and warranty tech and everything else that I was at that time, uh, by that time, we may have had 40 dealers around the U.S., um, very small business and we, we said, uh, what are we going to do when we hit, you know, a million dollars for the first time? That was our, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going to go on a cruise, you know, still waiting for that cruise. <laughs> <laughs> and just to put that in perspective, approximately how many dealers do you have in just the U.S. today? Um, in terms of accounts, just car or yeah, because just, remember we're doing home yeah, too. Yeah. Let's just say car because obviously think... it started with just car, correct? That's where it started. I'd say we have about 1,200 here in the U.S. Wow. Plus, we sell in you know 80 international markets, and um, you know we're also involved in marine audio very heavily, and uh, mm -hmm. as I said, home audio, which is a whole other you know dimension to the company. Um, so yeah, I mean, when I joined JL as the do-it-all guy and um, and all that, we had seven people, right, including the people who assembled the enclosures you know, because we still made the power wedges and stuff like that. So we all had multiple tasks and multiple duties and we went to shows and came back and worked the office and shipped and, you know, everything. So it's gone from seven, you know, to where we are today. I think the last count I saw, we have 650 employees Jeez. now mm. here in the U S um, 
largely because we do manufacturing um, here. And a lot of them are involved in manufacturing. Um, so yeah, it's been amazing to watch the company grow around me, you know, and, and, and see all the good people we've brought in, what they've contributed and, you know, and, and frankly, you know, the leadership of, of Lucio and, and subsequently when Andy joined the company, Andy Oxenhorn joined the company in 98 and brought a whole bunch of management experience and, and, uh, you know, horsepower that we needed because we were we were facing that classic entrepreneurial problem you know we were, the mm -hmm. business was really good but we had no idea how to manage it um and you know there's several stages you go through and even today we face you know challenges due to growth that we need to you know make big adjustments for mm -hmm. um but yeah it's it's been growing ever since and it's a it's an amazing company with great people um we have a a very product focused and engineering focused outlook on things, which is fun. And, and we don't really care how other people do it. We, we're not run by bean counters. We just kind of do our thing. If we think it's interesting, we chase after it. And our instincts are generally pretty good. We've thrown a few duds out there, but you know, um, for the most part, I think we're, um, we're hitting the mark. We like to listen to what dealers are, are asking for from a product perspective and, pay attention to what some of the challenges are. An example would be OEM integration. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really a category that um, back in 2004, I don't think it even really existed as a category, but that's when we introduced the clean sweep. And that was our first DSP and our first OEM integration product. And um, it was basically a, an attempt to solve a problem that was emerging, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the kind of initiatives that we we can follow at JL, and we have the freedom to do that, which would be hard to do at a, a more corporately structured company. So we're still very um, uh, very friendly to new ideas, and and mm -hmm. we know that not all not all products are going to make money, and we're kind of okay with that as long as yeah. enough products make good money. <laughs> you can afford to to do some mm -hmm. things that are uh, that are more of a passion project than a than a brain project, you know. So we'll get back into all the, you know, the evolution of jail, but let's go back to when you're talking about you had six employees, because then I pose the question, how many employees do you have now and how many dealers you have now? Right. And we've gotten some publicity, obviously, from from the IASCA circuit. The magazine started to cover our cars and the word got out. Started to get a lot of inquiries. So we had, we had a big growth spurt early on. We hired uh, Alan Wenzel at the same time that I came on. Alan took took charge of sales. We started going to trade shows under our own name, little 10 by 10 boots and 10 by 20 boots, but we were there freezing our butts off in Las Vegas outside in the parking lot. Um, was the logo what, what it is today in its first evolution? Yeah, I think ever since 1989, the logo's been what it is. We added so a it's circle remained to constant. it. Okay. We added a circle around it uh, more recently, but... Uh, the same logo's been been in place since then, and it was designed by Mr. Prony. He he did the the proportions of it, and we actually have a mathematical model of it, so that you know the ratios of the angles and and, mm -hmm. and, the, and the sides and all that. And it must be adhered to. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the logo's been around a long time, and we also added graphics behind it. In the '90s, you had to put pink and teal on everything, oh, yeah. so it had the had the splash behind it. Um, 
So we, we play with it a little bit, but fundamentally it stays the same. And sometimes we just spell out the, the name of the company, mm -hmm. JL Audio, without without the boots on top. That's mm -hmm. what we call the JL boots. But the beauty about the boots is that on a dust cap, on a black speaker, a white imprint of that boot logo, you could see it from 150 yards away mm -hmm. and recognize it. And back when we were doing a lot of competition cars and you know promoting that side of the business, you went to a show, you could pick out the JL cars. I mean, from from everywhere. The look the look was the same whether you bought our least expensive woofer or our most expensive woofer back in those days, right? A 10W6 had the same look as a 10W1 or a 10W0. So people who couldn't afford the really expensive one didn't feel like they were looking any less cool than the guy than the guy who could, you know. It's so, it's a Corvette. It's only got 80 horsepower, but it's a Corvette. It, it's it's <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's a Chevette, you know, but it's, you know, it, it's good. So, you know, we we did some things that were accidentally smart um in that respect and we had most of all we had a great product and we taught people how to use it because our focus back in those days was on something called the reference manual which was a, a, a binder that we made each dealer buy when they became a dealer we never gave it away it was you always had to pay a hundred dollars for it they all bitched about it they all said they never paid for anything like that but if you want to be a dealer you had to buy it and the reason was we wanted them to see value in it, right? The, what the hell did I just pay $100 for? And inside that book were charts that showed you how to create subwoofer systems with our products. That And they were ranked in terms of performance for different types of customers. They included port dimensions. They included you know, volume variations, different configurations of woofers, isobaric, bandpass, you name it. Huge amount of work. How many, how many hours went into making that? I have no idea. I... I, I spent, um, hmm, I, I really don't know. It was probably I mean, most, most of weeks. my work. Do you for, still have one laying around? I don't know if I have one here. I have one at the office. Um, so it still is in existence. Yeah. It's not current anymore. Back right. in, uh, back in 2000, it, it got phased out. People wouldn't read anymore. So, <laughs> but that's cool. The, uh, the reference manual was huge. It gave, it gave the dealers a sales tool and a technical tool. They could sit with a customer and show them why they were recommending two 10W1s ported for their application. Um, they could show the installer, this is what JL Audio says you should build, so build that. And in general, <clears throat> you got great results if you followed the instructions. So, you know, the, the company was built on that kind of technical support base that dealers really appreciated. Um, and then later we expanded into component speakers and, uh, you know, more enclosed products and, uh, eventually and amplifiers eventually. Yes. That was 1999. We embarked on the amplifier project. That was Andy's, um, one of Andy's first initiatives when he got here, he said, why aren't we doing amplifiers? I said, well, cause we don't know anything about doing Amplifiers. We're speaker guys, you know. I love it. So go find some people who know amplifiers, right? Well, fortunately, Bruce McMillan was available, and we hired him. He was the chief engineer at PPI and then Extant, right? And Extant had been absorbed by uh, MTX, by MyTech, and uh, he left, and we were fortunate to, to snag him and another 
very talented engineer, Dave Creek, who uh, who worked with him. We set them up in a little office in Phoenix because amplifier engineers have to live in Phoenix. It's a law. They're not allowed anywhere else. And they love it's, it there. It must average 110 degrees right. in your environment to be an amplifier engineer. We set them up in a little office, um, and they and Bruce had some ideas that some of which he had experimented with in the past, some of which were things he wanted to try. And we basically said, you know, let's talk about how to make something that's cool, that's different. And the whole RIPS technology came out of those discussions, which was the, the concept that the amplifier could produce its full design power into any impedance within a reasonable range, which was one and a half to four ohms, right? And it was risky because everybody was accustomed to the notion that an amp would double its power when you cut the impedance in half, right? So if you had 100 watt amps at four ohms, oh, it's a 200 watt amp at uh, at two ohms. And if it doesn't do that, well, you know what it is, right? So we had to explain to people, no, what's actually happening is the inverse of that. We're allowing you to get the full power at four ohms, which you can't do otherwise. And we explained to dealers how this would make their lives easier because it didn't matter what woofers they sold with them. The amplifier would be able to drive them at full design power. Plus, it's a regulated supply, so it's going to you know, sound really good and be really tight. And fortunately, Bruce knows how to design a very high-quality amp, and, uh, and they, were, they were compact for their day. Um, and they were dense in terms of power per cubic inch. And uh, reasonably reliable at first and very reliable uh, <laughs> after that um, when we you know, figured out the inevitable bugs. They were built overseas from the start. The initial ones were made in Korea. Bruce, Dave, and I took an epic trip to Korea to uh, evaluate amplifier manufacturing companies. That was a. I need beers to tell those stories. But... <laughs> I definitely want at least one or two of the craziest things that happened on that trip. Hundred percent. Because that oh. sounds like it would be a crazy trip. There was a lot of crazy things, some of which will remain private, but. Um, it was really hot in Seoul and they picked us up in this little Hyundai and the gentleman from the, one of the amplifier companies was there to greet us and he, and his driver was driving. So these three large American, well, Bruce isn't large, Dave and I are pretty big guys and the two Koreans in this car and the, the, uh, the heat and he rolled his windows down and the air conditioning didn't work. I mean, it was just oppressive so we showed up you know to meet these people you know absolutely soaked <laughs> to the skin <laughs> like, um kimchi was interesting i got to like it uh -huh. as a self-defense mechanism you eat it because once you once you eat it then you don't smell it anymore so it doesn't bother you anymore it's amazing <laughs> so I, I actually got to enjoy it i and when i came home my wife commented about my laundry but um <laughs> the uh that was a, an interesting cultural experience. We got to see some, uh, we got to see a cultural museum, which was very interesting and, you know, a bunch of things like that. But some of the other shenanigans shall remain yeah. um, in private. Uh, the, the trip was actually very fruitful for us because we, we instantly knew that one of the companies we were looking at was not the right company. Um, and it was really between a couple of other ones. And we, we did a pretty decent job evaluating them and, and picked one and started working with them. They were very confused because we didn't want to let them design the product. 
Um, that's what they were accustomed to. We would just, they were accustomed to us making a sketch and tell us what you wanted to do and let us do it. That was their, their philosophy. And we were saying, no, we're going to give you, you know, everything drawn out and everything, all the schematics and, and we're going to do the board layouts and you're not. And, uh, they were very uncomfortable working that way, but we insisted and, um, you know, the product benefited from, from the fact that it was really designed, you know, by us and by Dave and by, by Bruce. And that's gone on to become a huge part of our business. I mean, the electronics, um, division in Phoenix, uh, Currently, it's led by Dr. Stephen Lee, who has worked for Harman, Harman in the past, and he worked for Phoenix Gold. He worked for um, Precision Power back in the day. Remember the flat woofers and all that stuff from PPI? That was during his tenure there. And uh, he's got a doctorate in, in uh, DSP technology, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so he's really been a driving force for us as we've moved into DSP. Uh, we have a whole crew of fantastic engineers in Phoenix, including Bruce, who's still there, and Dave, who's still there. Um, you guys, uh, guys who do an amazing job. Dan Borzone, uh, Merv Grant. I mean, there's just a slew of highly experienced design engineers. We have a guy named Daryl Chapman, who worked for Rockford for many years in their production team. He actually manages our suppliers and our production teams overseas. So it's really kind of a, a collection of huge talent that's there. And then we have an office in Oregon where all the digital guys live because they like the rainforest. They're different than the analog guys. <laughs> so there's a pocket of really brilliant DSP guys up there who we managed to, to uh, connect with uh, via Steven. And uh, they've done all the amazing stuff you know, with DSP for us in the last six years. Um, and they're very busy with projects. Um, DSP is just becoming part of more and more and more um, mm -hmm. every day. And we're becoming a software company Yeah. in addition to being a, a hardware company. And that's a whole other ball of wax. Um, designing software is hard. Um, you know, everybody thinks it's, it's super easy, but, you know, just designing a good user interface and, uh, and storyboarding the way the software works and considering every eventuality that might come up. And, and then... I think, I think Gary and I have said in the past multiple times that when you look at anything that JL does, like, you know, the VXI, right. And you're going through the tune software, you can just tell that it, it's been thought out. You know what I mean? Like people have thought about how a, somebody in our field would use the platform. Because it's not always like that. Sometimes there's like user interface that's just done to do what it has to do, but it doesn't do it in the way that we would, you know, kind of think. I think it's always think very I, clever. I think I said it a couple times that as someone who in a past life had done some product development stuff, mm -hmm. you always benchmark what is out there. And I always feel like every time I fire up somebody's DSP for the first time, I'm excited to get the chance to like experience what somebody thought their best effort was. Mm -hmm. And with every DSP I'd ever blindly gone into, downloaded software, gone through the process of getting it up and running, plugged it in and went, what the was this person <laughs> thinking, right? The JL was the only one that you could tell 
that somebody had taken the time to benchmark every other DSP that was available before they started. Like it's, it's, it's obvious that attention was paid to the stuff that was important and to make sure it made sense and was logical and that you had all the bases covered. Yeah, definitely. I don't think anybody else did. Like, I honestly don't think there's another company that went out there and said, this is how this guy's DSP works. This is how this guy's works. How can we improve upon this? Yeah, definitely. You do some benchmarking early on at the whiteboard phase. Um, and we certainly benchmark some of the more popular quality DSPs out there. Uh, we make we make lists of what we like and what we don't, and and you know we we try and come up with a, a list of things that we want to have in our product and a list of mistakes we want to avoid, right? But then ultimately we set that aside and say, you know, if we were doing this from scratch, how would that happen? What makes sense to us, right? And after we've got that sketched up, then we bring those other things back and say, okay, let's compare. Are we making any of the mistakes? Um, so in a category that we're entering, not as a leader, but, you know, kind of, you know, a couple years behind or whatever, we have that luxury of being able to, to study other people's mistakes and successes. Uh, when you're leading, you don't have that luxury, right? So you have to, I think, forgive some companies who are putting huge effort mm -hmm. into developing complex products like this with limited resources. And, um, you know, I, uh, I really can't, you know, be too rough on them because I know how hard it is. Um, and we have resources. I mean, we, we have patience. We have the luxury of, of budget and patience to make sure it's right. Um, if you don't have that, then you have to take your best shot. And sometimes, it, you know, it is what it is. We, I'll tell you, though, the, the tweak was the first one, right, that we introduced and introduced Tune software for it. The original interface was very functional, but it was from an engineer's mind, right? And from an engineer's mind, it made total sense. And from other people's mind, it made no sense at all. So you have to have that left brain engineering think, and then you have to have the right brain look at it in terms of aesthetics, in terms of order, in terms of visual, you know, confusion. Um, and then you have to really, you know, bring that together. So I, I used to kind of, you know, laugh about software engineers or whatever. I don't anymore. It's a lot of work. It, <laughs> it's painful. It's boring at times. You're belaboring one little aspect of the interface for weeks on end in meetings, mm -hmm. and, you know, but it's important to get those things nailed down because customers have no tolerance. They're so accustomed to amazing apps that are free on their phones all the time and you know, we're flooded with great interfaces all over the place. There's no tolerance for substandard stuff. And it's expensive to do it right. It really is. Um, and that cost, you know, people don't want to bear it in terms of paying for an app. It has to be free, right? And it has to be, it has to be baked into the, the whole project. And you have to sell enough VXIs to, to make the investment in that software um, pay off. So there's a, a little bit of dollar allocation, you know, cost that has to be put into each one. To, so, to so you're saying VXI is going to be around for another 20 years? Um, <laughs> probably not exactly in its current form, although we've been known to do that from time to time. We keep things, you know, we keep things because they sell. We just introduced, we just, I'm sorry, we just discontinued Slash this year. It was in its third version, you know, minor facelifts and upgrades here and there. 
but they still sold. I mean, we introduced HD, and when we introduced HD, we said, okay, flat, you know, Slash is done because mm -hmm. HD walks all over it. No, Slash wasn't done because people liked it, and some people just wanted it, so you keep making it. Um, if people keep buying it, we'll keep making it. So we end up with seven amplifier lines <laughs> as a result of that. But, uh, you know, as long as they find a home and and uh, we're not losing our shirts, then it's uh, it's okay. Slash was just an iconic design. Like when you think of an amplifier, I think of a Slash amp. Maybe it's just because of my demographic coming up. That's kind of like my time period, I guess. But when I think of a just an amplifier, I instantly go to a Slash amp, like the old school Slash amp. Yeah, well, there's a lot of um, um, the whole concept of all the connectors and controls on one edge. Mm -hmm. um, that was liberally borrowed from Soundstream, you know, back in the olden days, who were really the ones who did that. And we, you know, I, I always liked that. So mm -hmm. I, I said, if we can, let's do it that way. And the engineers hate it because it's a terrible way to route things in an amplifier ideally you want power coming in one side you know and speakers going out the other side and uh, you want the signal processing as far away from the power stuff as possible and you don't want their paths to cross inside right um so doing all that stuff on the front edge actually complicates the design a great deal right but it was a a form that the installers loved whenever we asked installers well, how would you want an amp to be then we want everything on one edge it actually makes the amp smaller in practice, right? When you actually install it in a space mm -hmm. because you don't have the wire, you know, space on two sides. So that was a one of the design, you know, directives that was given all the connectors on one side. And the heatsink kind of came about because of that. Mm -hmm. He said, how are we going to get the heat out of this sucker? Um, you know, because we're trying to make them small. And some of them were class AB, not all of them were class D. Mm -hmm. So we had to, you know, put a real chunky heat sink on there with fins and all that kind of stuff. And, and then once we had that established and we actually hired a company to do a thermal study of that. And they said, yeah, that's the way to do it. Um, it was a more expensive way to build it, but that's, that's the way we went. And that kind of just established the parameters. And from there it was styling, right? Um, we had, we worked with an industrial designer. Who still works with us today and designed some of our current products um he he kind of did the original you know detailing of the design and uh and that was that it was it was form following function really but i'm, I'm glad you liked it i loved it i loved it and i i think i really love like from a design standpoint when i'm trying to integrate something in a car just the just the ability when you're putting one side by side by side, just how cool it looks all together and how uniform and how it just flows. You know what I mean? So that's what I think really made the design is when you could stack a few side by side. Yeah, and when you laid them next to each other, the end cap was half of a full heatsink fin. So mm -hmm. it made yep. it to its yep. to its opposite one and it looked like a yep. continuous mm -hmm. heatsink. Yeah, that was a pain, but yeah. it uh, Those are the little details that make things yeah, awesome. it's all coming back to me now, all those. <laughs> yeah. So, meetings, so what was the, uh, when the clean suite first came out, mm -hmm. bring me back through that whole process of being in the boardroom or whatever and trying to come out with that product. Well, yeah, I, I was there because 
it was really kind of my my baby. Um, I just saw it happening. I saw non-removable uh, processing being put into head units by by car manufacturers, and I measured some of them and said, hmm, "This is a problem because it's it's going to be expensive and hard to correct for that." Mm -hmm. um, and not everybody's going to buy a third octave EQ and and deal with that, right? So the idea was, you know, can it be done first? Can we measure a frequency response um, and then apply an inverse filter and do it automatically? That was the hard part. The, um, you know, obviously designing an inverse filter is no big deal for an electrical signal, but the um, the automation of the whole thing was the tricky part. So the clean sweep had a badass DSP in it. It had, it had like one of the most powerful shark um, processors of, of its day, right? Because you know, I'm, I'm guessing our code was not the most efficient or or whatever, but it was a brute force approach. There were four 30 band EQs in engaged in the DSP, and and they were under automatic control after measuring the signal. And it also had to level match them and do a bunch of other things. And then it had an aux input, you know, bus, and it had a, a level control system. So a big old box about the size of a paperback book, pretty big by today's standards. Mm -hmm. um, but pretty revolutionary, I think, because I think it was the first electronic OEM interface. And it was kind of cool because it was, uh, um, it was universal, right? This, mm -hmm. you know, would work in any system that had these issues. What what sucked was it took so long to develop that by the time we introduced it, another problem had come up, and that was, you know, signals that weren't full range became more common in, mm -hmm. in automobiles. So we had to scramble to create a little summing interface that attached, you know, mm -hmm. to the clean suite. Is that many a time? And it was an analog piece with little lights that you twiddled the knobs on. It, it worked, but that was kind of a, a bummer that that was kind of a, you know, not encapsulated in the original product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but Clean Sweep sold very successfully for uh, over 10 years, um, along with its little accessories. And what's fascinating about it is it's the, I think it's the only electronic product we ever designed that never had a rev. Hmm. It was it was right from the get go, um, no firmware updates, no, which was a good thing because it was a pain in the butt to do, but it just never needed it. It was it was really right from the get go, and a brilliant DSP engineer named Campbell Kelly was the lead guy on that. Um, he had worked for ADS back in the day and done a done a lot of really cool stuff um we were lucky to be able to snag him into that project that was his um his baby so yeah i mean clean sweep was was great the, the modern equivalent would be our our fixed mm -hmm. processors which uh, are more advanced and can account for crossed over signals and delays and other things um and they have a, a user adjustable interface on the back end that you can adjust so they're pretty cool. But yeah, we've been in that category. And the drive for it was not so much that we expected to make huge money on those products because it's very hard to recoup the investment in developing them. 
and then you have to mm -hmm. train on them. And when you're new with something, training is hard. You got to go out there and, you know, really preach the gospel over and over again. And you got to deal with thousands of tech calls. And you know how installers are. Something doesn't mm -hmm. work once. They wanna, <laughs> oh my God. They want to throw it. They want to throw it out of the garage and don't ever yeah. buy it. How many again. tech guys do you guys have? Uh, currently five. Which I think is pretty amazing. Yeah, that should be. I like was 20. expecting you to say more. Right. Yeah. 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 I was. Yeah, I was going to say like four. They do. They do amazing work, and they answer phone calls, emails, texts, uh, website inquiries, <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> it's crazy what they have to do now. How many channels they have to follow? So anyway, I mean, yeah, OE integration never been a profit center on its own, but we saw it as important for the overall health of the industry in giving mm -hmm. installers tools that they needed to be able to address some of these modern vehicles so we could sell amplifiers and high-end speakers and wire and cable and you know all the other things where where the real you know profit dollars are so yeah. sometimes a project is kind of indirectly valuable in that yep, sense yep. sometimes you got to make a product to sell other products <laughs> yep. to keep that lifeline going yeah exactly and uh you know we're willing to do it because we're 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 crazy and we love a challenge and it's fun. Well, yeah, I mean, at the time that product, you know, and I'm just thinking of myself as a installer, you could take any dummy and you play a track, you hit a fucking button and then bam, you're, you're good to go. You know what I mean? That's the theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the theory. Yeah, that's how we expected it to go. And then when they don't get the four green lights, that's when the that's when the fun begins. Yeah, that's, that's when, when the tech it, support calls. That's come. when the tech support line <laughs> start lighting up. And it, what was funny oh, is on the clean hilarious. sweep, we printed what the light codes meant. You know, yeah. flashing red uh -huh. means this, and flashing green means this. It was printed yep. right there next to the lights. Right? Yeah, yeah. And people would call us. Yeah, I got uh, flashing green lights. What does that mean? <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> You didn't even have to go to the manual. You know, installers don't read manuals. <laughs> no, but it was right on the product. <laughs> yeah, it actually was printed on the <laughs> Yeah, that's on. what I mean. Yeah. That's hilarious. So we love you guys. So and yeah, and now you've you've evolved all the way to the VXI stuff, which is, in my opinion, the best value product of anything that a consumer can buy today. Wow. And I'll stand behind that. And I, I write think it's that down. Best. And uh... yeah, I think it's the best value product. You know, thank Dash you. Matt Schaefer. <laughs> yeah. That's not high, high praise. I appreciate it. No, I, I I love those amps. We use them literally all the time. But we have said many times on the on this show, my favorite controller interface out of all the DSPs, just because of how simple it is to use, is the JL knob, the two hundred five. Yep. It is just beautiful. It's I love the color coordination with different presets. It's a simple tap. You can instantly change to the next preset. If you get a phone call and you're on a separate source like an optic source or you know using a different input, you can go right back to the OEM in a split second. Uh, I also love it for demo purposes when I can demo the factory stereo with the phone, right? With your phone integrating into the factory stereo, versus doing like maybe a, a Bluetooth interface optic into the into the VXI versus doing like an analog input from a DAP 
directly in. You can literally play the same track on all three things, start them at the same exact time, and bounce right through the different sources to see the width, the depth, and all that shit completely change, you know, by sources in real time. I love it. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's incredibly flexible. Um, and you know, the valet switch lets you do lots of interesting things too automatically for customers, you know, mm -hmm. top up, top down tunes that automatically change depending on your driving condition. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a lot of things. There's a controller now for Marine too. That's just a preset switcher because knobs don't really make sense for Marine, but we have a waterproof mm -hmm. controller for the MBI amps. That's just a push button with the lighted button. So that's really nice. So yeah, VXI is a whole ecosystem of hardware and, and software, and it's going to get even better. Do you guys use PCs in the shop or Macs? PC for me. I, I would say both, most right? people in a sh I, I use a Mac at home, but a PC at, okay. at the shop. Well, in the new version of Tune that's about to drop soon, the PC version, the Mac version won't do it, but the PC version will will allow you to open two sessions of Tune simultaneously. So you'll be able to have two windows. So if you don't have a hub, you can actually... There you go. That goes to the... You'll have to select which USB port and all that. So that'll help. It would help to have a big screen to put it on but uh, or to just switch between them. But that'll be available in the new version. That's one of the software tweaks we've done to to the tune software, a bunch of interface improvements and some stuff I can't spill the bean on yet. Beans on yet, but if you love VXI now, you're you're just gonna be the ultimate VXI fanboy in a few weeks. Because hmm. it's, it's all gonna change. And you can always spill the beans and we could edit it out. I'm just no, no, I can't. Uh, we're working. Yeah, we're, we're very close. We're working on the training for it and the and the reveal for it. So, it's uh, it's literally around the corner, and um, it'll you'll be very happy. It'll it'll take a few weeks for this episode to come out. So when you hear this, go <laughs> yeah. look for it. Yeah, yeah. Sometime around mid October, the software will be available, and then something else will be available um, after that. Next, cool. what else do you want to? <laughs> So obviously we kind of derailed the whole JL evolution, but a question that I had was take me back to when the idea came out for like the first flat pancake type subwoofer. Oh, okay. Um, the 13 TW five was born from a necessity in our home audio line for an in-wall subwoofer that would fit in a standard two by four stud bay. That's where the need came from, right? But of course, as soon as we saw what Lou was cooking in his mind and started to see some of his sketches, we said, you know, for car audio, that would be really cool, like under the seat of a truck, for example. <laughs> so that became part of the design very quickly as well to make sure that it would be a good car audio woofer. But actually they're very similar, the car audio and the home audio version of the 13 TW5 are very, very similar. Um, the key technology is one that we had had kind of on a shelf for a long time. It was this concentric tube suspension design that basically allows you to shove the motor up high in the structure. As long as you have a big voice coil, which you do, you have like a seven inch voice coil, I think in the 13 TW5, 
it goes around the whole motor and it's kind of like a giant tweeter uh, in terms of design uh, with pretty good excursion for something that is so shallow because the concentric tube design gives it the clearance the mechanical clearance you need to get real real excursion you know even under abusive conditions it has limits is that but as i say that's the shallowest woofer that you guys make right it is um it it has limits um you know because there's just so, so much distance the thing can move uh but the big piston helps make up for that right because you have more cone area so it really works well as a 13 and a half we we were going to do a 12 inch and the formula just didn't work out right and we actually had you know invested in some tooling and everything but lou lou was not happy with it and it ended up being dead-ended for that reason that's when he said i've got another idea <laughs> for a shallow woofer maybe he said what if lou always goes what if that's his favorite thing what if we did a woofer that was very shallow but not quite as shallow as a 13 pw5 but i could give you 50 percent more excursion and oh okay and that's kind of where the tw3 sprung from was from that design in that case he did do a 10 and a 12 and those are you know brilliant woofers they mm -hmm. sell like hotcakes they take a beating um and they sound really good um it's one of our most popular woofers um by far because it just fits so many applications I'm, I'm not even a dealer, and I'm I have cars in the bay right now where there are seven total between two cars going in. Yeah, and the TW3 use use the same technology, the the concentric tube, different motor design. The TW3 actually uses a more conventional diameter voice coil, uh, multi layer, you know, pretty beefy voice coil, smaller motor, but you know, Lou has a a talent for designing a, a speaker that's well balanced and in terms of motor and suspension behavior and everything else he gets like the whole thing on another level um i understand about 10 percent of what he talks about and our other speaker engineers probably understand 60 70 percent but he's got that extra he's got that extra you know holistic knowledge about things and he's also a, a trained architect and and that shows in a lot of his designs when you look at them from a structural perspective, um, like the way the cones are designed and the suspensions. Very light materials, very humble materials, polypropylene, not, not exotic or anything. But in terms of pistonic stiffness, he's able to get, you know, the same kind of stiffness you get from a much heavier material with, uh, with less mass. And you go, well, a woofer needs mass, so why do you need to save mass? Well, it depends on where you want to put it you know maybe you don't want it in the cone maybe you want it in a few extra layers on the voice coil or you want to you know have the mass elsewhere so all those decisions that go into negotiating a woofer design um he really gets the whole thing and that's that's kind of the magic sauce that that we've enjoyed selling for all these years is his his real talent at, at seeing those things and designing things that work well there's an eight inch thin woofer that we have in our home audio line it's really not it's not beautiful it's not really designed for car audio um but this this box is ported it's a very thin enclosure again it fits in a in a two by four wall eight inch woofer with a radical port system in the enclosure and it's amazing I mean, it's just absolutely amazing 
So yeah, these thin woofer things. And the other one. Is there a chance we'll see an eight-inch shallow woofer from you? I hope so. Um, I've been bugging them about it. Uh, there, there's situations where you want a smaller, smaller driver. Um, I think Gary called me maybe two weeks ago. I think it was Gary, <laughs> and he was like, "What are you using for an eight-inch slim?" AW one. And I said, yeah, I, "I don't have that much depth." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. AW one's yeah, a good woofer. I think I told him the only time I've really ever used an eight-inch slim was like a, a kicker slim. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we did a, I mean, it was, it's not an easy solution um, yeah. to get, you know, once you make the piston smaller, it's, it's yeah, tough yeah. to make it, make it work. Yeah. Yeah. We, we got our efficiency elsewhere and we did do a shallow eight and it was an impressive amount of output. I was, I'll, uh, I'll save that for another episode, but cool. we, uh, I was, I was pretty yeah. happy with it. And, um, and then the TW ones came out too. And that's mm -hmm. a, that's a nice woofer from an installation standpoint because it doesn't it is, stick yeah. out on the front. Yep. It's very flush on the front. Basically we sunk the surround attachment down into the basket so that the grill would be um, very flush. Unlike the TW3 yeah, where yeah, the I, grill comes up high over right. the front of the woofer. And I love how that grill's incorporated. So like from an install standpoint, you know, like if you're clearing the grill, you're good to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. So yeah, I mean, we've got some great shallow designs. There'll be more coming. I mean, it's uh, it's you guys a huge have part of you the guys business. have mastered the subwoofer, and Gary and I, on older podcasts, we've talked about that a JL subwoofer is might be the only subwoofer that you could literally power it up in the box that it comes in, the cardboard box, <laughs> and, it, and it'll sound don't, don't pretty good. That. Please don't tell me <laughs> it's hard to make a JL woofer. Sound it it bad. is. Yeah, no, I've seen it. I was, <laughs> I was laughing. I was laughing when you're talking about the technical manual because I'm like, how much technical manual do you need? You build a box, you put the woofer in, it sounds good, you're done. I've heard, I've heard bad sounding ones, so it it can happen. Really? But but you really have to try. I mean, you really have yeah, to try hard. Have to have to really try. Um, and then on the other side of the whole depth thing, you have the W7, which has been around for 20 years. Next year. Oh gosh! Yeah, they, bring they us through that. Feel like, old. The construction of that, where you just trying to go all out and kind of like yeah, the no budget, and you just wanted to make something the best you could make it. Yeah, it, it was over five years in the making before it was introduced, and you know we we poked Lou and said, "Hey Lou, you know all these stamped steel baskets and all that stuff we're doing. You know people want to see a real killer woofer," and said, "I'm not going to do a." big woofer unless there's a reason for it to be big and it has to be the best so it took them a long time the motor was a radical new design that involved um, FEA analysis back in the days when FEA analysis wasn't all that common for that sort of thing we actually had to write our own software for it which we still use um, the architecture of the cone was uh, was a big deal the roll developing that foam roll was was a major project because of the size of it and you couldn't misbehave at high excursions and the whole overroll design how to clamp the surround there's actually six or seven failed attempts at doing that before we came up with the with the barrel ring you know to go around the outside um and then tooling the thing up everything on that speaker was custom i mean the screws were custom the tinsel leads were special. They were jacketed and 
you know, doubled up and there was absolutely nothing in that woofer that was off the shelf and because Lou wanted it that way and it was badass, you know? Um, so we introduced it in 2001 and, um, I'll, I'll never forget because I was in Dallas on September 11th, 2001 doing W7 training. So getting ready to do hmm. a W7 training when all those horrible things happened. And um, I, the training was in the hotel I was staying in. So I, I got showered and went down. I met with the rep and we were just watching the TV in the bar in the hotel. I was going, what the hell? And people actually started to show up for the training. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's awkward. And not all of them, but about seven people showed up. And the last thing I wanted to do was <laughs> in that Talk situation was to train. Yeah. But I, there was nothing else to do other than stare at CNN. So we actually went through it pretty quickly and trained those guys. And then, so I'll never forget that moment in time because it's it was so mm. painful on some levels. And then on the other side, we were so excited because we were introducing right. this thing we've been working on for so many years and dealers were salivating over it. And we had shown it at CES behind a glass window with a special coating on it. So when the Japanese took flash pictures, it bounced off. <laughs> Well, well, was that the CES? <laughs> I remember I worked, I think I was working for another manufacturer at the time. And uh, I remember CES, it was like behind a curtain or yep. something. Like We couldn't even get to it. We're like, where is it? Where is it? And everybody's like, where's what? I don't know. That was a year before. That was a year uh, before it? it was in the glass. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was Lou's little private booth. Um, it was a little cubicle that we had set up for that. So yeah, there was a lot of secret about it because it had a lot of new stuff and a bunch of patents on it, and and it was fun just to you know get people's interest up and and all well, that. Much but, like the design of much like the design of the other Warfers, I mean, just from an installer standpoint, it just when you sold a, a W7 and then you're going to install it, it was just so different than any other Warfer, right? Because you're like literally taking the ring off you're you know pulling the surround off the screws are hidden behind the surround and then of course it comes with a template you know what i mean because it ships in the box and to keep it rigid and for shipping purposes you have a perfect template to use so i mean just everything about it when you sold it you're just like you know i'm installing a w7 you know just had that feel of high end and luxury attached with it because it was way different and it was a thousand freaking dollars which was a lot of money <laughs> yeah back then <laughs> For a woofer right i mean that was crazy money yeah. so i remember hearing a a friend of mine who i think was a rep for you guys out here at one point josh Pugh, oh, yeah. had a single eight ported in his truck with a thousand one on it and it whoo it got all of it yeah boy did it get all of it it probably died <laughs> <laughs> but uh we we introduced it at ces we had a golf demo car that had two 13s in it golf gti that was stupid loud. Um, I mean, it, let me put it this way. It wasn't an SBL car, but it was a very loud SQ car with tremendous base capability. Um, that was a lot of fun. Um, we've always liked to introduce big products with a big demo car. The Mini, the original version of the Mini we did, introduced the W6s. The second version of the Mini introduced the W6 V2s. The, Golf GTI introduced the W7, so we always try to build something that shows off what the product's capable of. 
and uh, we enjoy it. I mean, building cars and making them sound good is is still fun after all these years. But yeah, twenty years. It's, uh, it's amazing. And W seven, how many? Is it just the original version, or it's been? It went through or? a revision um, on its tenth anniversary, so it's due for another. Yeah, there was an AE. Yeah, that's that when it shipped. went went to AE. That was ten years ago. Oh wow. <laughs> So the basket changed color. There were some dimensional changes. Um, there was some retooling of, of the baskets, which changed a few things in terms of tolerances um, and some very minor you know, tweaks here and there. But the main change that people could notice was purely cosmetic. It was, it was a black basket instead of a silver one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they didn't allow us uh, or they didn't allow the original silver paint to be used anymore. Um, there was some it was some kind of environmental no-no or something so mm-hmm. they said okay we can let me show you what we can do and they sent us this frame that was a battleship gray matte you know I was like no <laughs> <laughs> so that's one of the things that spurred the uh, you know we're going to go to a different color because we can't get this color the way it used to be so one of my most viral installs ever had two w7s in it and it was uh, it was a five series BMW where the, there were two W sevens. What looked behind, it looked like it was the grill of a front end oh, of a BMW. Yeah. Oh, I think I remember that. I remember that? Yeah. yeah. And I remember all the comments that I would get on like the pictures and everything were like, "Have fun cleaning the bugs off those subwoofers." <laughs> and I remember. Well, I imagine what you could I'd... do with a modern BMW grill. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I posted the build log after I was done and I posted the pictures and then I woke up like the next day and there was like 40,000 shares of like oh this gosh. one install. It was, it was insane. It's uh, that's crazy, but yeah, we've, uh, we've enjoyed, you know, selling that product and the, the, the importance of that woofer to our home audio project was, you know, huge. Um, the Fathoms and the Gotham yeah. use W sevens. Oh my God! They're so they're, nice. Was that was that woofer designed for the home audio, or was it car audio, or was it multi-purpose from day one? It was a car audio woofer from day one. Then, when we decided to go into home audio, Lou had some ideas for a special woofer for that, and then we tried the existing W seven. Some of them worked well, some didn't. Home audio is surprising because the enclosure is very small, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of EQ applied. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's kind of a different game from a from a power standpoint, dynamic standpoint. Um, and a few tweaks were made to some of the woofers because we did a ten, a twelve, and a thirteen and a half size, and uh, I think the twelve had a motor change. 13 may have had a motor change also the 10 was pretty much untouched um we tried to make an eight lou wasn't happy with it it never never saw the light of day and then we did the the stack 13 and a half in the gotham which is a ridiculous thing the gotham but it's awesome it, it's a 350 pound fiberglass woofer the fiberglass walls are two inches thick or two and a half inches thick in parts with bracing and all kinds of stuff and, and a ridiculously powerful amplifier. And it's beautiful. Um, so I, I think it's seventeen or eighteen thousand dollars nowadays. Jeez. And we sell every single one we can make. 
and we make them in Miramar and you know from start to finish the enclosures, the buffers, everything. So the Miramar factory is you know such a cool place to visit. This whole COVID thing really sucks because we can't have people you know visiting us. It's something that we really enjoyed doing, so people could experience um, you know what we do for a living. Um, mm -hmm. And we you know we actually build product here in the U.S. So not all our product uh, we obviously import some products too and some of the parts we use are are also imported but but it's a it's a real factory making you know lots of speakers and enclosures and home audio products marine products you name it how many stealth boxes do you guys do in a day i don't know the number to that guesstimate, guesstimate. <laughs> no i couldn't possibly <laughs> guess uh, right. what's yeah, your most popular stealth box skew I have no idea. They're all popular. They're like they're like children, you know. <laughs> yeah, those are, you know, you could probably predict it. You know which ones are in demand. Trucks, Jeeps, you know, that sort of thing. Those are those are the ones that people really It's ironic cuz the largest vehicles are the ones that most gravitate towards stealth box solutions cuz they want to keep their Just space. The right? smallest smallest enclosure in the biggest vehicle. Right. But Makes sense. Yeah, we make a lot of stealth boxes. Um, it's a, again, a big part of our business, It's a unique solution that makes our line more valuable to dealers, we think. And, um, it's a great product for a dealer to have as a, as an option for a customer. And, uh, How much cool. development time does it take when, when you guys decide a, a new application for that? Is that a week? Is that months? It's is months. That... Yeah. It's, there's two phases to it. The, the design phase is usually about 60 days. Um, vehicle comes in we do scans nowadays when the old days we used to lay glass and stuff now everything's scanned and computerized and we make a a buck on our um you know a stack buck on our coma machines from that you do a plaster mold and then you can make some parts right and we evaluate the enclosure we have a pretty good idea what the volume is pretty good idea if it's going to work or not before we build it but I listen to every one of them. It's part of the approval process. Um, we make sure the fit is right. The mount has to be right. Uh, it has to be secure in the vehicle. Sometimes that requires brackets. That takes a little extra time. Um, brackets to be sourced. Sometimes there's other parts like grills and things of that nature that have to be created and sourced. What about driver selection? Do you select the driver for... You put a TW3 like in it. Price... <laughs> Well, I mean, nowadays that's kind of how, how it feels. In the old in the old days, we used every woofer you could imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We used AW7s in some of them. We used, uh, you know, W3s a lot, W1s when we didn't have the depth. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, the TW3 just kind of rises to the top. Sometimes the TW1 because it just fits. And then TW5 also. There's some boxes that are so mm -hmm. shallow that you just need to go to the TW5. So that Ford uh, Super Duty underseat box, for example, you know, that's we're cranking those out all day long, all the time. And, uh, and the crazy thing is, we can't keep up with demand. Um, the there's two sides to the whole supply thing in the industry right now. The one side is that COVID has affected all kinds of things and supply chains and transportation and it's hard to get materials to build products and you guys experience difficulties getting products on your end. But the other thing that's happened, the flip side is that 
demand has skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. We're selling more product today than we did last year and then we did the year before. So it's really those two things working in combination that have led to this crunch. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to catch up. Now, it's a good problem and you know, half of it is a good problem. The fact that people are buying high-end car audio is absolutely fantastic. A few years ago, I was starting to feel depressed, you know, you know, that sales, the industry sales kept going down and you know, some product categories were struggling and you're going, damn, what's going on? Why don't people love this anymore, right? It's so, it's so fun to have a great system in your car. What the hell's going on? And you had all kinds of discussions about it. Our oh, kids aren't driving anymore. They're all in their phones, you know, whatever. It's not the same scene we had. True, but what happened to all those guys who grew up with it and grew out of it? How can we get them back, you know? And those are the guys really buying car audio today, right? It's yeah, not, it's that, not. That, that's the key demographic of my clientele, the people that listen to the podcast. I looked at our analytics today, Gary, and it's, it's overwhelming. It's like 80% is age almost 40 to 70 is the demographic that listens to this podcast. So when you talk about the audio days going through the 80s and the 90s, this resonates with them because they were doing the same scene or had the same True. upbringing. And well, they were there. They were in. A, they were in a mini truck with a mullet. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, they were there. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and you know, a lot of the people that tell me, I got out of it, and I'm trying to reengage and bring that back. And I know that things have changed, and I have a nice car now, and I don't trust just a random person working on my car. I mean, the last person that physically drove to my store. He was from New York. He drove down. I had no idea like his background, but we talked. We talked about a really elaborate, nice system. And then at the end of it, he pulls out this magazine of a a car he had that was in a magazine in like 97. You know what I mean? And he was like, this is the Impala I had. And we did all this work and he was all proud of it. And he's like wanting to relive that experience, but do it in a way that's integrated with a car but gives him also an audio experience that he's never physically had before. But, you know, with, with like this podcast, he knows that things have changed dramatically from audio quality perspective. And he just wants to experience that. That's great. I mean, I've, once you've had a great system in your car, if you truly love music, I mean, it's so hard to live without one. Um, I've always had systems. You know, some of them not so great. The current one I have is wonderful. I love listening to it in my my old man car, my Cadillac. Um, but it's a it's a stress reliever. It's a it's a luxury that you know makes me happy, and it's the only place I can listen to my music, which is embarrassing sometimes. You know, loud, <laughs> and, and nobody bothers me. You know, and uh, and it's good. So I think a lot of people are probably trying to recapture some of that. And it's it's really energized me. I mean, it's restored my faith that, you know, what we're doing here really, you know, has value for people. Um, this year, we finally stopped shrinking. You know, the industry is actually up this year. First time since 07. Uh, so that's like, oh, you know, that's a big deal. Finally, you mm-hmm. know. And and from what I can might see, be, it's going to... It might be temporary, though. You know, I think a lot of people aren't traveling. And, you know, I've literally had clients come and say, well, I haven't been on a vacation this year. I'm not traveling anymore. And I got to spend my money somehow. Like they've literally said that to me. 
So I, I would like to see if it's a temporary thing. And once international travel can fully open and it's easy again, because I just went to France and it was the most stressful, pain in the ass thing before we went because we're worried about getting a health pass and if they're going to shut down the border and it, it just was not easy. Why don't you get in your car and drive to Yosemite or something and <laughs> enjoy the, enjoy the music on the way. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I get what you're saying and I appreciate your, your caution. Uh, but I see it as a good thing that so many people are reconnecting with high end audio in the automobile and mm -hmm. I, Absolutely I right. think it's uh, an opportunity for us to to showcase our talents really deliver good value that's mm -hmm. the important thing right no matter what the customer is spending they got to get good value from it mm -hmm. um and uh and hopefully we'll get you know them to buy more and we'll get their friends to buy more and, and we can restart this engine again um it's 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 too cool of a thing to fade away um, there, I think I think we have a little bit of growth ahead of us in some unique areas. And that's that when I was in high school, you know, classic cars were 50s and 60s cars. Right. And now there is a resurgence of these 80s and 90s cars that are starting to become collectible and there's scenes developing around. I mean, heck, we have mini truck clubs coming back here where if you don't have like a pre-90 mini, like you're nothing. Like if you don't have a tilt bed or, uh, you know, the the top that's removable or whatever that, that was, it's not cool. And with those scenes kind of re-emerging, I believe that a lot of people are re-energized, like you're saying. And then that creates a kind of a, you know, a new platform for us to those guys get back into it. One guy gets a system now. I mean, we see it. Oh, yeah, Matt, how often am I telling you I'm doing some '80s European car? Like it's an arms race, right? It's like it happens yeah. in lakes too. Guy, some guy will get a badass system on his boat, and all of a sudden, yep. Yep. there's a bunch of customers coming from that lake, right? Yep. Um, yep. So, and we got to got get out there and and be grassroots about it too. We used to do a lot of shows before we got old you know, on the weekends and stuff like that. And we need some young people in the industry who have the energy to go out there and do some of that grassroots stuff. Uh, we need a new generation coming I, in, you know, at all levels. You're not going out on a Sunday to a marina. You're trying to watch Kirk Cousins throw four touchdown passes. When was that going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the only time Kirk throws four is in garbage time. <laughs> Vikings fan here. I'm I'm guilty of being yeah, being uh, or having gallows humor about that team. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I I think it's a positive thing that the uh, that there seems to be you know a real heartbeat in uh, in the car audio biz and the marine biz is crazy good right now as well, and that's related to us. A lot of our customers, our dealers, do a lot of marine work too. Um, systems being put in boats are really really cool nowadays and, you know you can put dsp in boats and do all kinds of neat things it's a it's a lot of fun and then home audio is another place that people have invested money in recent years i mean they're cocooning a lot obviously because they're not going out so mm -hmm. it's been a it's been a boom as well so yeah it's it's two sides of a coin the the demand side and the supply side and and at some point it'll even out a little bit and it won't be as, as crazy. What, what do you foresee JL's biggest challenge be 
in the car side five years from now because cars are drastically changing. Mm -hmm. um, I told Gary this just a few days ago on this Tesla Plaid that I'm working on, but on the new Tesla Plaid, they've eliminated any kind of uh, external battery, like your standard battery under the hood. They've there's went no battery to this, terminals. There, there's nothing. It's there's just no 12 a little volt circuit? No. So there's a tiny lithium ion battery about the size of my hand that looks like a BCM that has a plug going into it with your, you, you know, essentially your power and your ground, but it's a very small gauge wire, call it eight gauge. And that goes to another BCM. And the only thing that you can even tap to or unbolt, really nothing's unboltable, but it's all a closed circuit. And then there's a male spade in there. It's basically a service spade to where you can check the voltage probably to see if the system is up mm. and running. And the system runs off 15.5 volts. The entire inside electrical system, 15.5. And before, they would have a typical battery that you could connect to and then manage it how you would. And this one, it's just... They have a battery that can only power the electronics that are inside, and that's about it. Like, you're not going to pull anything from this circuit. Well, there's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's different. And, you know, I got a call today because somebody knew that I was working on this car, and they said, hey, I, I just put in a radar detector, and it's constantly saying over voltage, over voltage, <laughs> you know? So, and that also speaks to, like, amplifier design and power supplies mm -hmm. and you know, where does your input, uh, your input voltage max out at and what type type of capacitors are you going to use in the amps based on how like this car is laid out. And it, for me, that is like a massive challenge going forward, not only for, you know, manufacturers to have a more variable voltage range with their equipment, but also from an installer standpoint, to even understand how to integrate into this car because even the last model of Tesla, like the S and the X, the prior versions that had this battery, people were still kind of unfamiliar and there wasn't a lot of education of really how to integrate into this car. Now you have like, you know, obviously like the Ford Lightning and this Tesla Plaid, you know, there's a lot of unknown and I'm sure more and more manufacturers are gonna start making closed electrical systems, meaning there, there's not really any access points. So I don't know if we're dependent on integration people like PAC and NavTV to make some sort of piece that's going to give us a manageable and open way to integrate and vary voltage and amperage and you know safely pull something from this car that we can use to install you know JL amps and processors and subwoofers. Yeah, I mean we have to react to changes. Um... For example, you mentioned the voltage swings um, on, on cars that have start-stop, which became an issue a mm -hmm. few years ago. Um, voltage can swing from 9 volts to 16 volts, right? Mm -hmm. And if you have protection circuitry that's triggered by over-voltage, all of a sudden your amp shuts down. Yeah. So we had an issue with some of our smaller amps with that issue. and uh, So you're constantly having to deal with changes like that now. You know, obviously the electric car thing is is a major shift and it seems like mm -hmm. there's huge investment from the automakers to 
to have, a, you know, more electric options or all electric fleets by certain dates, like 2035, I've heard, um, and other dates like that. And that's going to, you know, require change and adjustment, no question. But if you asked me initially, you know, what is the biggest challenge that mm -hmm. we have as manufacturers? Um, I still think that our biggest challenge as an industry is the best word I can use is professionalism. We need to establish professional standards and professional training for dealing with things like this, for understanding, right? We need more installers who can look at a vehicle like the one you just looked at and say, I kind of understand what's happening here and I understand the problem and I understand mm -hmm. what not to do. And, uh, you know, there's there's way too much gap between the average installer and the really great installer right now. I want to bring that average installer up to that, you know, closer to that great installer in terms of knowledge. And, um, we, you know, we train and train and train on the product side, um, but it's not always easy to get that level up where people, you know, get the importance of improving their improving their knowledge base and really understanding acoustics and electrical systems and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, computers, you know, really everything we're doing is, is related to a computer issue right now. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we need a, a real movement, um, in this industry to upgrade the, the knowledge base out there and, uh, yeah, educate and educate people and give them access to the knowledge base and, that's why the clean sweep did so well. You turn it to three quarters volume, you make sure your EQ's at zero or all your things are at zero and your balance and fades at zero, and then you hit this button. Yeah, and you're an expert. <laughs> yeah, I mean everybody yeah, wants like I said, the, that's the problem. And the plug and play thing also, drives me nuts, yeah. you know, because I keep hearing that we need plug and play. We need this to be plug and play. We need you to design yeah. the plug and play. It's like it's it's really putting you at risk as a professional for things to be plug and play. First of all, they have to be made dumber in order for that to happen. And, you know, what's the value of a professional at that? You know, if it's so simple that all you have to do is plug this in and plug your laptop in and go like that. So do you worry, do you worry about the generation mindset of people coming into the industry? Cause obviously I've, our industry is fueled by the age, the ages that I already brought up in the, you know, earlier in the podcast. Mm -hmm. And obviously the people coming in, they just have a completely different way to troubleshoot. You know, they quickly ask questions and they ask questions instead of trying to figure it out themselves what and failing. <laughs> yeah. They go to YouTube, they go to direct text, they post something to Facebook in two seconds and then wait for an answer. Right. And that's, the complete opposite of where we came from is we had to just f figure it out. There was no outlets. So we're all master troubleshooters and we know how to actually do and solve these problems that we're talking about in the Tesla plaid and come up with a solution. Whereas the people coming in they're they're just asking for a solution. Like you said, give us plug and play, give us right. plug and play, give us an answer. How do you do this before right. they're even trying to even, well, you see it in auto like mechanics now yeah. too. Auto mechanics are like, well, change the module didn't work. Yeah, like te you know? te Tesla is the perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. If you if you have to ever talk to anyone at Tesla who 
works on the cars, they literally have no idea what they're doing. They're literally following a computer. And if you even give them technical information as like a technician, they have no idea what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. No idea how to fix it. They would just like. So how old were you no, when you uh, started installing that? Professionally speaking. So, so professionally, I was probably about 18, right out of high school. Fresh out of high school. Yeah, fresh out of high school. I went to Universal Technical Institute and then started at Circuit City and then Tweeter. And, you started at you know, Circuit City? Came. Yeah. Wow. That would be my first professional place. What'd they pay you back then, if, if you don't mind me asking? <laughs> Pittance. <laughs> I'd make like, I don't know, $400 a week. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think, you know, the entry-level guy who comes into a shop nowadays doesn't have a lot of patience for the workload of retail installation and the low pay, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got him for a certain period of time where he may be able to learn some things, but then by the point where he's actually becoming useful, you know, there's other opportunities pulling at him to make Mm -hmm. more money. For sure. And I think we've... we've, uh, we failed to show people a path to where this can be a, a career and a profession, mm-hmm. right? The profession is part of professional. You know, that mm-hmm. it's not looked at as that. It's looked at as a job. It's a cool job. I can buy gear cheap. I get mm-hmm. to play with cars. Yeah. Uh, but now I got to get serious because I want to start a family. So I'm going to yeah. go sell insurance for, for my uncle. <laughs> yeah. And that's the loss, right, for us yeah. because we're, we're not converting that early interested talent into professionals um and i think it happens it, it happens at all levels i mean it at individual shops there's responsibility for that i think mm-hmm. uh, rep firms uh, should also bear some responsibility for that i'd like to see some younger people involved in the rep game um you know again doing some events and building building things like that um manufacturers too um you know, we need to we need to be bringing younger people and paying them decently so that they're they're willing to stick around in this fun thing we we all enjoy. Um, th- that's going to build a base, uh, but it's a it, it's a daunting task, right? I mean, budget- that's one of the reasons I love having guests on the podcast is you know you get to hear stories like yours and Gary's and all the different people who've never left the industry you know, really since a certain young point and they've just been here forever and they've made a career out of it. And obviously do sometimes we work late and is it stressful? Yeah, but that's really all jobs probably in life, right? But that also really resonates with a lot of the clientele that also listen to the podcast is there are people out there that do know what they're talking about. Oh yeah, And that's also the other thing about I would say today's sales, which really are going to hurt a lot of people, is a lot of people are self-educated. And I mean, I think we can all agree that when we want to go buy a new vacuum, we overanalyze the shit out of every vacuum that you could buy tirelessly to where you spend three hours, you don't buy a vacuum, and then you'll repick it up next week to figure out what you can buy, and then you become a vacuum expert. Yeah, you right? read Amazon reviews, right? And yeah, you become an exactly. Expert. <laughs> over and over and over. And that's a lot like clientele. So when somebody looking to purchase something who has a background, like a pretty decent background, they never stated as they're talking to you, 
but they're like, yeah, I want to get something for my car. And they are educated enough. And then they talk to somebody who they, they know that they know more than the sales guy. That's a problem. You know, that's a red flag. And that's going to be a lot of the different shops. And I would say one of the biggest problems in car audio is sales, the salespeople and the knowledge of salespeople. Because it seems like most of the people that know sales have gravitated towards the install bay because they're more technical and they just know more about the product. And the sales are just delivering the sales, right? So I would say that's one of the hardest things to overcome in our industry is just like lack of educated, really knowledgeable salespeople. Well, where do they put the noob? Where does the noob go? They, they put you on the sales floor, didn't right. they? Why? <laughs> what the hell do you know? Yeah. Right. How can you counsel a customer if you really don't know? Now you should be standing next to an experienced salesperson listening for a while, mm -hmm. and then maybe be given some ups and some opportunities to work with customers with somebody mentoring and watching you. That's that's how it that's how it needs to work. But you can't just throw a noob by himself on a sales floor and say, "Hey, here you go, make some sales happen." Um, well, I think that the industry, though, has changed quite a bit. If you think back to those days where I would say that a good solid 80% of the work that we used to do was, hey, my radio got stolen. Uh -huh. Hey, I had a tape deck. I want a CD player. Hey, I have some wizard cones, some two ways to make this Can thing Can you sound install amazing. this Mercedes radio in my Monte Carlo? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> there, there was so much business that kept a shop afloat selling gear, oh, yeah. doing Tenors, quick everything. in and out work. Yeah, I mean, those those days of deck four and antenna in a Civic or a, you know, deck and two in a Toyota pickup or whatever yeah, it was, they're those days, those profitable days are gone for shops. And so the, the cars have become more difficult. We don't, like less shops are selling that quick and easy that the basic sales guy could sell, right? Like you don't need a huge education to say, Hey, a set of, you know, coaxes in the doors and a CD player, and this is your price out the door, and you need a kit and a harness, and you're done. These days, it's got more comp. It's it, you know, the complexity of interfaces to put a radio and you know, uh, amplifier interfaces and steering wheel control interfaces and s retention of a satellite radio and all of these things make it so complicated to sell something that the margin is so low on now that you can't, I, I mean, how do you, how do you live off of that as a stereo shop owner? Yeah. I, I know some good salespeople out there. I know some great ones. Uh, some of them are also owners, you know, the, yeah. you know, the owner on the sales floor is usually a pretty good salesperson. Um, they're out there um, and they do well. Usually, you know, having a good, good salesperson who's knowledgeable and who knows when to ask questions and, and when to offer, advice um that's you know half the game uh and then in the back you need installers who are installing productively productivity is is everything in the shop you know how much product are you moving through that shop every day because that's really where the where the profit dollars come in because you only have so much labor to sell right so if you're if you're busy it's all about how much product you're putting through there and what that product costs right so it's a different equation. Um, I always hated pulling an installer away from a job to come help a customer. I mean, that was to me, that was like a loss when I was a salesman. 
yeah. sometimes I'd run back there, ask some questions, and then run back to the customer and tell them I talked to the installer and this is what we should do. But I, I never wanted to interrupt that pro productivity um, because it was not good for the shop. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you need professionalism up front and in, and in the back. And somehow we need to, mm -hmm. you know, stimulate that and and make it uh, make it spread. I talked to a, several high end in installers at a trade event years ago. I don't remember where who was there. Matt may have been there. I don't know. But I floated the idea that these guys should should form a, a guild. It's an old word, but it's a good word. It's a trade guild, like right? Guild. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're associated as businesses or that you have an interest in each other's businesses. It just means that you all live by a certain code of, of, you know, conduct and quality and, uh, and, uh, service to one another. Maybe you agree to service each other's in installs if they're in your market for whatever reason, mm -hmm. for a customer, you have some loose associations like that. But the most important thing is a conference call among these peers that occurs at a, on a regular basis, maybe twice a month, where where you all you know, exchange business ideas and, and 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 talk about serious things, not not shooting the shit, but actually having a structure to it where you where you exchange important ideas. And I think one of the first topics that would come up is 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 getting um, higher quality help. You know, how do we keep it? How do we you know how do we attract it? How do we nurture it, you know, and train it? Mm -hmm. um, but I know there's, you know, probably 50 shops in the country that that are on similar levels of, of expertise who who could benefit from something like that. And maybe half of them would want to join a, a club like that. Um, and it certainly wouldn't be a manufacturer driven thing. It has to be, you know, it has to be driven mm -hmm. on the retail side. There's been some attempts at it. Um, online you know facebook groups and things like that but i almost think that that's not what it's really about um you need to have conversations with people mm -hmm. and uh and discuss you know things face to face i think the facebook communication model is is different so that's an idea i had years ago but yeah i i kind of feel like you know the whole in well just industry event for shop owners and installers um has kind of lost it's it's kind of been repetitive for the last 10 or 15 years and and i remember sitting through many trainings as i was learning coming up and there was definitely in we'll just say the early 90s a much more technical vibe and a and that experience that other people had and that knowledge was passed on and through the years that gravitated into most trainings are going through a catalog and saying here's feature here's function and it's not it's kind of lost the exciting part of it too yeah well that's another area where we need better you know better standards is in in training you know mm -hmm. we we're certainly investing in it. Um, we've had to change the way we deliver it during these times. Uh, everything's done, you know, remotely via video rather than in person. Yep. Um, I really miss the opportunity to connect with dealers at events like K-Fest. I'm, I'm, I'm sad not to be there um, and that the events can't happen <clears throat> because I think there's, 
there's real value to that human connection, you know, to, to really seeing things and, and, and yeah. being able to talk to people. But yeah. that networking and, and talking to people and having conversations much like this, um, but with people that you don't see very often and, and obviously some of the brightest minds in our industry, it really sparks that passion inside people and gives them the drive because you know how that goes. You, you learn when you want to learn. And if, if you don't have something that's exciting to you, you're not really going to digest what's in front of you without that drive coming somewhere from within. Yeah. At a networking event, you're actually supposed to sit with and mingle and converse with people who you don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the point, right? So what I do see happening at many of these industry events is you have, you know, groups of guys who are friends and Hey, they're together, you know, twice a year. So when they get together, they want to have fun together, <clears throat> but it's really important to actually branch out, you know, outside of that, that intimate group of friends that you have and actually, um, you know, meet other people and talk to them. Even if, you know, it, it could be somebody who works for a manufacturer you don't sell, but you're just going to mm -hmm. introduce yourself and, and tell them a little bit about your shop and, Hey, tell me a little bit about your product. Um, you never know what can happen from chance encounters like that. So I, you know, I hope we can get back to it, uh, soon and, um, you know, get together and, and exchange ideas. And, and I, and I like the in-person trainings too. There's, there's a certain connection there that's hard to replicate online. It's hard, as hard as you yeah, might try. Sure. So we'll, we'll hopefully get back there soon. Yeah. One of the quotes that Gary and I have talked about, or I've talked about to Gary numerous times is that availability creates opportunity. And there's been so many times that being at an event, just, you know, chilling with other people, we create an idea, which then further comes to fruition. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where so many little things start and happen just by being together and talking, which just isn't happening right now, which makes it very tough. Yeah. I mean, at the end of each day, you need to ask yourself, did I get smarter today? Did I, yeah. did I learn some things that, um, I really didn't know before, you know, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's part of that game. It used to happen at CES too, <clears throat> back in the heyday of CES when car audio was still, you know, a thing there. It was it was the excitement. Everybody's here. Everybody's got their new stuff. We're all. I mean, I'm going to go to the Alpine booth and and look at the stuff, and uh, they're going to come to mine, and I'm going to show them what we do, and um, and then talking to all the customers and you know, international visitors in one place is an amazing energy there. Um, that's probably not not going to come back in that in that same sense. Obviously, car audio kind of faded from CES for various reasons. Um, became too expensive and, you know, Vegas changed. Vegas used to be affordable to go to and became unaffordable. A lot of car audio companies went off site like, like we did. And mm -hmm. eventually, you know, it was dead. Uh, but K-Fest, I, I had hope would kind of kindle a new version of that, at least among the, the real specialists, you know, the, mm -hmm. the specialist retailers. Because uh, you're not capturing all retailers with KFest. There's, you know, a big chunk of business that's just not going there. No, but I do feel like the the KFest crowd. For those listening that are not industry insiders, uh, Knowledge Fest is an event. It's 
hosted it's it's an internal industry event that encompasses training both from uh, outside sources and from manufacturers there's award ceremonies that go along with it it's where they announce the installer of the year and mm-hmm. and retailer of the year that type of stuff the people that go to those events are usually the ones that are active in the communities active in the online communities now active in um, pursuing education and also trying to give back and mentor other people and it's usually the, the more specialist and and the people that are attentive to it it's not the stack them high watch them fly box mm-hmm. mover slam you know slam it in get it in get it out type of install shop so it is very kind of it, it is specialized it is the, the cream of the crop i think that takes the time to go yeah i mean that's what i would consider the real you know professional 12 volt specialists who who know that you know they need to keep learning um and that's that's what the whole event is predicated on and i hope we can get back to it um, as quickly as we can do you worry that a lot of the companies that are still relying on just the easy swap out stuff, they're eventually going to go away because they don't really know how to integrate into modern vehicles? You're referring to manufacturers or retailers? Retailers. Because there's still many retailers out there that rely on just the easy stuff that you can still do to cars. and. Five years from now, unless you have companies again like PAC and NavTV, which obviously, like them, they have to evolve or die. They got to continue to make it. I love those guys. Yeah. (laughs) They got to make it easy for us to install product, especially for people with less education to integrate into cars. Yeah. I think the work that those companies uh, are doing is the work they're doing is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, tip of the hat, you know, they, yeah, they, uh, they're, they're being innovative. They're really tackling the difficult vehicles that keep coming out. Um, and they're real serious about it. They're putting resources into it. And I, I sure hope they're being rewarded with, uh, with dealer loyalty and, um, and mm-hmm. sell through of all those solutions. Um, I think they are, but I, I hope they're rewarded handsomely for it because it's a, big upfront investment on their part every time they decide to address one of these applications. Um, so yeah, I'm very thankful for what all those guys who are developing vehicle interfaces have been doing for the past few years. They're doing fantastic work. And um, I hope they all survive and they all keep competing with one another and, and making great stuff. Um, it's not really our preferred area of operation as a company to, to go after these specific vehicle solutions. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we want to stay in our in our lane and, and build uh, great, you know, speakers and amplifiers. Of course, we're concerned about how they integrate. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's necessary to have companies doing that work out there. What do you think that means? I think Matt's initial question was more geared towards the shops and your dealers. Um, obviously, you know, we right. talked you have somewhere in the 1200 dealer range. Mm-hmm. What percentage of those do you think are high-end oh. retailers? And... <laughs> They're like children. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not asking you to name names. Or anything. Who's the worst dealer? Yeah. Who's the biggest hack you have as a dealer? Let's let's call them out right here, right now. Yeah, no, we have dealers who do operate at different levels, and they op- they work on different cars too. Yeah. You know, you have dealers who who operate mostly with 
older cars. And uh, for them, you know, the old tech is fine. That's what they, they do. And we love those guys too. They sell lots of woofers and lots of big amplifiers mm -hmm. and, and things like that. Um, so it's all good business and, um, and we appreciate all of it. But I'll tell you that what you're saying has been said now for a long time. Yeah, that's no, true. The industry is changing. Have you seen the new Camaro Berlinetta? Yeah. With the radio, you can't swap, you know. <laughs> We're all going to be out of business next month. Uh, did you see the Buick Riata with the CRT in the dash? We're doomed. Uh, you know, it, those things have been going on for a while. I do agree that the technologies we're dealing with now are much more complex and advanced and all that stuff that we were worried about back then. But we're more advanced and complex, too. You know, we have more capabilities than we used to have. Um, you know, speaking for ourselves, we're deep into DSP. We know how it works. We, we, we're constantly developing products around it. Uh, all those interface companies we just talked about, they're doing good stuff. Um, so I think we're, we're in the fight. Uh, but it's always going to be a fight. There's always going to be that vehicle looming on this horizon that's the, the storm cloud that, you know, we worry about. And hopefully we can keep pace with it. Um, if not, we have to work around it, you know. <laughs> Wasn't it about 10 years ago that we had, in, we had dealers telling customers that they just couldn't work on their car at all? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think that's i think there's some shops that still tell people that though. right but there's another shop that's that's more in tune with available interfaces and things who probably can work on that car now yeah mm -hmm. it's also really different now with the sharing of information online and there are a lot of you know you can pick any make and model a car and there's a it's not so much forums anymore but it's facebook groups and mm -hmm. and communities where i i used to laugh like we would go when I worked at Alpine, we would look at some of these vehicle specific forums and it's like everybody be like, Hey, yeah, I went to the Best Buy and I got these infinity two ways. Oh, it's night and day better. I just bolted them in and it's night and day better. And you're like, yeah, I have some advice for, to watch. I have some advice for your, your listeners <clears throat> who are out there who read these things on Facebook or read reviews on Amazon. Pick something that you're very expert in. Let's say you're not a car audio expert, but let's say you're an expert on dental tools or you know, some other thing and go find some reviews on that on Facebook or on, on, uh, on Amazon or whatever, and evaluate how trustworthy those opinions are. Right. And, and they're generally very poor quality out of, uh, out of 20 reviews, there might be one that's, you know, you could read as an expert and go, well, that guy actually kind of got it. Um, and most of them are full of errors, full of misconceptions, uh, plain misstatements, sometimes straight up malice towards, you know, a product or an installer or a person. And it's just ridiculous. Go talk to an expert um, at a good shop, develop a rapport with them um, and have them explain to you what your options are for, for upgrading your vehicle. They, they have a stake in you being happy. You know, they, they, they know well, if they're, that their if job they're is, worth the shit. Yeah, they do. <laughs> no, they, they do. And I'm, I'm talking about, you know, good shops that, yeah. that, you know, that are obviously professional in how they, how they approach things. And, you know, if you don't feel right about it, find somebody else, yeah. you know, you, you have the right. Like you're going, 
walk and shop and finding finding the right professional educated shop is huge in our industry because it's not like my analogy with buying a vacuum earlier you you buy a vacuum you plug it in you really can't mess it up plug it in and it works or it doesn't it either sucks a lot of stuff up or it doesn't whereas in our industry you know i can't tell you how many cars that i've had that are fixed jobs where they were issues and like eqs just aren't even set you know they buy an, they buy a dsp and there's nothing even set in it it's just it's just a loc there's just so many things like that you know phase issues that are just so obvious that if anyone even remotely is experienced in our industry they would point that out and they could sit in the car and be like the mid base is totally out of phase you know in two seconds they could point that out but oh you could not. put some money it, on it that up front and, yeah. you'd usually be right yeah <laughs> and it's just people you know are getting the product and then they're blaming all oh, these jail speakers suck because mm -hmm. you know in retrospect it's just completely wrong the install's wrong it doesn't suck and, and that's always my analogy is like Look at what manufacturers are doing with paper and plastic speakers. They're making them sound really good with really poor materials. And they can make a car sound really good with paper cones. I think, and, I think another analogy to that is that you can listen to a decent pair of 100 to $400 bookshelf speakers and have sound that crushes the majority of installs that come out of a car audio shop. For sure. And, and what that tells you is that with minimal investment, if stuff is installed correctly and integrated in a way to work together and work in the car and dialed in right, it's going to sound good, right? And we, we talk about that, the treatment in the doors, the solid baffles, the sealing up to a door panel, all of these little steps along the way. And then you just pick what level of speaker you're going to bolt into that. Mm -hmm. But the doing it right is the most important part. That's the hardest part that until you show somebody or sit somebody in a car, or give them that experience, they have a hard time uh, realizing that or, or understanding that when you're trying to explain it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a dealer in um, in the South who, who sells tons of VXI, VSB amplifiers, and a lot of our C2 components. That's his favorite combination. He says that it delivers outstanding value. Um, the speakers are not too expensive. They're very reliable. They're not our flagships. They're, they're, you know, second from the bottom of the line, if you will, but they're, uh, they're great little speakers and with DSP on them, mm -hmm. he makes them sing. So that's become kind of his, his value, you know, sale that he, that he offers people. He's got them all cataloged for all the trucks. He does a lot. He's got the tunes already established. He's done all the all the legwork, and he does great business with it. You know, there's smart people out there who are really trying to deliver real value in terms of the end product. The end product is great audio. We're all selling, you know, the sound, the experience of listening to it. <clears throat> How we get there, what products we use can vary, but ultimately that's what customers are walking in the door for. That's what they're that's what they're expecting, and. Um, you know, being able to sell your difference as an installer, um, you know, requires a little bit of skill, but it should be obvious in the, you should be able to show somebody a work in progress in your shop and say, this is, this is how we do our work. Yes, we're more expensive. I totally understand that, but we believe we return value for that difference in price. 
And the value is a, a product that will sound better, that will last longer, that will not give you problems, and that will stand behind. You know, mm -hmm. the the price thing is a it, the price thing has kept us down as people have raced to offer low price packages and things like that. That's that's a long term. That's just not a winning game. We have to we have to deliver value, but that doesn't mean it has to be cheap. You can sell a, a great quality, expensive system that still delivers incredible value if it exceeds the customer's expectation of what it would be. So yeah. I don't know if you've if you've ever listened to any of our podcast stuff that we've done before or not. You don't have to answer that, but we did do a series of episodes where we sat with um, guys that you know some pretty pretty well known installers, and we had we with them designed systems on. We, I think we did $3,500 budget systems with a few of them. And the, the key thing in each system was DSP. Oh, right? yeah. Like everybody's go-to was we're going to get DSP in the car first. Like there was not one person that, that did Even not. with we were, factory we're speakers. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, DSP um, is transformational if you know how to use it. It's also transformational if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I also think most of the DSP amps were VXI amps suggested because we went through like exact Matt, product choices. Matt may have been pushing towards those a little bit. <laughs> well, we but, appreciate uh, we appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an obvious thing because it's it's so powerful um, with the right tools behind it and the right skills behind it. It's a uh, mm -hmm. It's absolutely what be, be at the front of my mind. I did an experiment at a training 30 years ago, probably in Northern California, very similar to that, where I gave the group, I split them into teams and gave them a budget and some fake products. I just wanted to see where they put the money in the system, whether they put it in the speakers or in the amp or in the subwoofers or the head unit, whatever it might be. Um, and then I gave them a hard time about their choices because a lot of them put the money in the head unit, you know, or, <laughs> you know, Put a huge amplifier on it and went with the cheap speakers and it's like what are you thinking right. you know you got to get yeah, your I priorities right i think uh, through all the conversations we had we we all were pretty much in agreement that you step one is getting a dsp in there and then allocate is and, and dsp amplifier has been the value choice in all mm -hmm. of those and then dump as much money as you can on the front speakers because it's easy to upgrade the base later Right. It's not easy to go back and make new speaker adapters and all that kind of stuff. Like get as much of that budget on those front speakers as you can. But DSP amp and front speakers sets sets you up for success. Yeah. And from there the rest of it can Yeah, absolutely. The the DSP amp in. not only is a good value in packaging the DSP and the amp in one box that hopefully costs a little less than separate, but it saves so much in installation time and space. Mm -hmm. because yep. the thing that drives me nuts with outboard DSPs is just all the cabling. You got eight channels of RCAs that you got to route out of the thing and, <laughs> and, you know, snake them around to your amplifiers, which might be in two locations. Um, that drives me nuts. That was, I mean, for me, right from the beginning with DSP was we got to put it in the amp, let it scale to the number of channels that are in the amp um, and, you know, get rid of all that clutter. Um, yeah. because there's no space for it in, in the car. So the, 
amplifier is going to be smaller and uh, you know everything packages nicely so i'm glad i'm glad it's being well received and um you know we certainly put a ton of work into it and as i hinted earlier there's some cool things coming that will help that product shine even more and uh, yeah we'll keep our eyes open you, and ears you bet well this was fun it was Is there yeah. anything else you want to uh other than the VXI stuff, anything you want to kind of dangle that might be coming in the future? Anything exciting? Anything at all that you can publicly hint at that might be? Oh, you know, we'll, there'll be some speakers. Get, be some give me a category. Component speakers. Subwoofer component speakers. Okay. Things coming there. W7 flat woofers. Mm. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. He's holding, he's bit his lip a little bit right there. Nope. That's a no. But, uh, oh. yeah, I mean, uh, it's there's opportunities out there with a whole bunch of product categories for us uh, now that we're across, you know, marine and car and uh, everything else. So we have to kind of feed all of those let, mouths. Let me ask you this. Which, what's your most successful category? Is it car, marine, or home? Uh, historically, car. Uh, currently, probably home, right? No, Marine's pretty darn strong, believe it or not. Yeah, I was oh, gonna okay. say Marine and Power Sports is probably huge for you guys. Uh, these days. Yeah, well, they're they're related, but yeah, Marine mostly. Um, yeah, and home is home is small because we're we're kind of at a very high end point with only one product category right mm -hmm. now. We really only sell subwoofers at this time, so there's only so much, you know business to go after there but we have a very good position in the market for high-end subs um, the line's very well respected and, and uh, it sells well we make everyone yeah, we those home sell. subs are just so different like if you get to hear one in person oh my god yeah I, I remember listening to the the demo that you guys had in Vegas of the c7s with the oh with was the, it the, with the two. Sub? no it had two um or is it the F two fathom subs? two fathom 112s I think yeah yeah God, that was amazing. The C7 demo at Vegas was was yeah. cool. Yeah, we used yeah. a little XD and a and a tweak uh, to run that one. So yeah, that was fun. So and what's your what's your best selling? Do you know your best selling product ever for JL? Historically, in terms of dollars yeah, or units, uh, probably the yeah. 500 slash one, because it ran for so long and was fairly expensive. So it it and sold in huge numbers. That's the best-selling car amp of all time in units, um, certainly in dollars. Maybe not in units, but certainly in dollars. Um, so that might be the, the big one. My last question would be, what is the best-sounding best car that you've ever sat in that you can remember? You know, that's a good question. Uh, oral memory is not very good, right? So usually, usually it just has to do with the impression you got when you right, listen yeah. to the car. And mm -hmm. if you line them all up today and listen to them in sequence, maybe you wouldn't come up with the same. Uh, the yeah, same obviously answers. it's going to hit you at different times in your yeah. career with different reference right. points. Um, I can name a few that stood out. Um, the SpeakerWorks Grand National, I've heard sound amazing and I've heard it sound bad. But when it sounded amazing, it was amazing. Um, the Chad Clodner's Mustang 
which competed in IASCA in the 90s. I was a Mustang notchback LX. Just wonderful sounding car. Had um, kick panel speakers and two big old subs in the rear. And, um, very simple system, but just really beautifully done. And it sounded just gorgeous. Um, <clears throat> I think the original JL Mini, just because it was so much fun to listen to and it just kicked the crap out of you and, and you just wanted more. <laughs> um, I That car would scare people. When you played Planet Krypton, the Telarc um, Star Trek's disc, and it hit that low pedal note on the organ, it, it, was, a, it was a thrill ride. Um, that had three 10W6s in it. And, uh, I think Gary just uh, subliminally uh, jotted that down. <laughs> and he's going to add it to the playlist. As I'm going to add it Mandel's to our playlist. I've never heard track. it. I don't know that Here, I've ever heard it. Here's the thing I'm with that track. It it's, and... it's a very low low pedal note. You'll know when it happens right after about a minute. It builds mm -hmm. up for a minute, and then it hits a big crescendo, and that's when that's when you'll hear it. But at last, it has a nice tail to it. And your car either got it or it don't. Because if it yeah. don't got it, you won't. I love feel I anything. love tracks like that. Yeah. <laughs> so you'll just see your woofers moving and nothing's happening, or you'll really feel it. So it's kind of cool. Cool. We keep a, a playlist on Spotify of demo tracks and stuff that we talk about, and so I'm gonna check this. Yeah, that's out. an old one, man. That's uh, add it too. Telark, uh, Star Tracks Two is the album. And the track is Superman, the Planet Krypton. I think. If if you had to. I know it's difficult to compare, you know, asking you to compare audio at one point in your life to audio at another point in your type life is like, hey, how good was that TV you had in 1986? But it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that when you're not changing that RGB, uh, I had setup. the three big lenses and a reflector. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the cars today, when done with a DSP mm -hmm. and and average speaker placement yeah. how do you think that compares to the competition and I, I granted most of the tunes these days are for a driver's seat and not doing two seat like they were attempted back in the day but what's your what how do you compare those two in your mind well they're different goals right mm -hmm. um so as you said one is a two one seat car and everything's aligned to that seat so yeah, you can di really dial it in with a DSP. So I think the gap between the cars nowadays is very small, and that's borne out in the in the scoring gaps that you see in competitions too, where people are winning by a quarter point or, you know, that sort of thing. It's hard to make differences when they're all designing the cars the same way, right. and a lot of them are using similar speakers or the same speakers, and and sometimes it's even the same car. <laughs> You know, right. So, right. And here we have a formula. Let's, yeah, let's and the methods are kind of the same. So it's kind of like NASCAR in that sense, where they're all building this template and trying to optimize it. And you win this race, and I'll win the next race, and and all that. So how do they sound? Well, um, they're technically good in the sense that placement is good and stage width is generally okay. Not always. Stage height is usually good because everybody's putting the speakers up high now, so they're not fighting the issues we fought back in the 90s with low speakers because we were trying to equalize path lengths and all that stuff that you don't need to do anymore. Um, tonally, they vary. Uh, I, I hear a lot of hyper-aggressive uh, mid-range and mid-bass. There is such a thing as too much mid-bass. 
and I hear it. I got to go. I got a thing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I hear it in a lot of cards where it's just overemphasized. I, I certainly appreciate a, a mid-base system that's dynamic and can keep up with a big, hairy sub. But it has to be tuned so that it actually transitions nicely. I don't like to hear mm -hmm. concussions going off when, when they don't need to be going off. So I think I, I think it's an attempt to just, you know, juice it so that the judges recognize it or something. Um, but but then again, some other cards sound really smooth and really nice and polite. And, you know, I would certainly not hate listening to them for long periods of time. I'd enjoy it. What we had going back in the day, again, some of this is nostalgia and, you know, old age, but they just seemed to be a little bit more fun to listen to. Um, they sounded bigger. Yes, the vocals weren't anchored in the center of the dash. Maybe they were a little wide and diffuse, but the stages were bigger. We, we used more rear speaker, so the sound was more enveloping. Uh, nowadays, if you use a rear speaker, you're some kind of, you know, heretic or something. <laughs> Uh, so we were playing with different things and, and they weren't necessarily right, but they didn't necessarily sound bad either. Um, my car that I competed with in the 89, 90 era, um, you know, was a successful competition car. One I asked got twice. I had, uh, 18 tweeters in the front of the car. So nowadays, you know, they would burn me at the stake for that. <laughs> And I was lighting a match uh, as you were saying. Yeah, exactly. I had 18, 18 <laughs> Audax TW51s in the front, little polycarbonate domes, and a pair of JBL mids, professional mids from their monitors, you know, little four inch mid and little red line mid woofers. In the back, I had the subwoofers and, and a pair of port coaxes. So there were like 34 speakers in the car. And uh, I People ask me, and I explain that nowadays, and they look at me like, oh, that can't sound good. That sounded, I bet that sounded like shit. I mean, how can you get all that to work? Well, it, it worked pretty well, you know, because there was some thought into how the speakers were placed. <clears throat> they were in arrays, and, you know, we didn't have DSP, but we worked with <clears throat> passive crossovers, and I had a couple of powerful EQs in the car that I used, and we did what we could with what we had. And the results were, were very fun to listen to. My car was a blast to listen to. You play anything on it, it sounded great. The center was a little wide, but other than that, it was a good car. Again, so could you, be not so you might be my so you might be my guy. Uh, and what I mean by that is every time we've asked a guest, how did you get into audio? Like when did you know that you wanted to do this? Everyone's like, I heard this sub and it changed my life. And then I said, at one point to one guest, I'm like, has anyone just been like, you know what? I heard these tweeters and <laughs> they were just amazing. And that's when I knew. Well, I am a tweeter. You're my guy. Yes. You're my guy. <clears throat> yeah. And, and I tend to like the tweeters that a lot of people hate. So maybe I'm weird because the polycarbonate Audax dome is considered to be a pretty uh, low class, Aggressive. low class tweeter, <laughs> like, right? Yeah. Because it has a tiny voice coil. It's a it's a really tiny coil. So if you overpower it, it sounds terrible. Right? Right, but you were probably but what I had class 18 were you competing of them. in. I had 18 yeah, of them. You have efficiency on your Exactly. Side. So I wasn't overpowering because I had 50 watts going to each side. 
okay? And I needed the efficiency because the JBL mids I was using are like 94 dB at one watt, one meter. So with two of them, at, you know, I was up at 97 dB at one watt, one meter. And they were with 50 watts, and I needed those little tweeters to keep up, so that's why I had lots of them. But they were in, in arrays very close together and strategically placed to give me the stage width and, and the height. You know, tweeter location um, is, all, is all about amplitude. It's not, it's not about timing. A lot of people, all oh, your tweeters are out of time. Nobody cares. It's, it's all about amplitude at those frequencies where you've got to worry about phase and time. Matt, Matt, and I, Matt and I got into this. Matt and I got into this. <laughs> who, who did I agree with? Some stuff. <laughs> with me. Okay, good. You're right. Um, now, as you get lower in frequency, let's say below two kilohertz or so, okay, phase, <laughs> phase starts to come into play. And by the time you get down to 200 hertz, it's, it's the thing, right? If you don't have that right at 200 hertz, you're dead meat. Right. So you, it's kind of understanding all those things that lead you to make decisions um, in design. So, and some of the decisions I made in that car had to do with where stuff would fit and where it wouldn't, you know, practical considerations. Because the, the look of the system obviously is important too. And then you work with what you have. So, at one, I asked it twice, you know, back when there were a lot of cars in that show, and, and I think it was a good car. And many of our cars used a lot of speakers, used center channels, used uh, you know all kinds of all kinds of stuff to um, to create a soundstage experience. So it's a different approach. They both they sounded decent from both seats, you know, technically speaking, and they were always fun to listen to and clean, spectrally and dynamic. They played loud, um, so they were successful under those rules that existed in those days, and I enjoyed listening to them, listening to them too. <clears throat> so right now I have one of those one-seat wonders myself. My Cadillac has DSP and a VXI amp and, you know, C7 speakers in factory locations. So I have dash mids and pillar tweeters and, and woofers. So you guys know exactly what the challenges are in getting that to work, and it exhibits some of the problems that are inherent to that setup, but it overcomes many of them pretty well, and it's a good-sounding, enjoyable system um, that's technically very good. I mean, sometimes it scares me because the vocal is so beautifully, you know, anchored in the center, and it really is nice. Um, now, that car at this stage in your life, are you th are you installing the stuff yourself oh, no. on like a weekend? Look at these. Or are you just getting some <laughs> dummy to look throw it hands. in and you're tuning these it? Look like, uh, <laughs> these look like installer's hands. Uh, look at those nails. <laughs> I never have been an installer. I I was an, a pain in the ass for installers. You know, for many, I, I did sales in the stores. I did system designs. I did box designs. I did all the measurements for systems. Um, so I did that kind of design work, um, but I never actually did the installs. And when it came to the, all the speaker warehouse cars, I participated and usually did more damage than than help. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I worked on my own crossovers and stuff like that. I knew what I was doing in that sense, but I would never try to make a living doing that because I'm, I'm not really the right shape or or mindset for it 
I get frustrated easily. So I, I appreciate installers a great deal. <clears throat> it's tough work. It really is. But yeah, no, I wouldn't call myself one. That's fun. So this was good. It's already been, believe it or not, two hours and 30 Oh, my minutes. God. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's past my bedtime. See, see how quick see how quick it goes when you just you don't plan, you just catch up and you just ramble. And yeah, it was fun. That was a good conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. We're gonna have uh Andy Waymeyer on the following episode of yours. Cool. Which should be Well that's gonna be three or be four fun. hours at least. Yeah. <laughs> once you yeah. once you once to... you crank Andy up, oh boy. Uh... <laughs> I'm gonna have to have a few coffee cocktails before oh, that he's... one. He's great though. He's he's uh he's a wealth of knowledge and he's very generous with it. Yep. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh hanging out with us and My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. It was fun hearing the evolution of JL. Because <laughs> I I never knew the entire story. I knew bits and pieces, but never Yeah, it's been never it's been an story. amazing ride, that's for sure. Yeah, you guys have come a long way and it's one of the most trusted brands in our industry for sure. Yeah, other than a, a couple uh, SPL base head guys that uh, trash talk just about everything that they can't buy on the internet for $99, I think that when it goes to reputation of car audio, you guys have done an amazing job of mm-hmm. maintaining uh, quality and, and just perception. You know, I don't I don't know anybody that comes in and says, JL sucks, so at all so take that as a compliment by the yeah, way that's thanks. what that was I mean, supposed to be i don't know how I've, i wrapped that up in a bunch of bad <laughs> words but i've always tried to focus on 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 the people who appreciate you know and see value in what we do so that's uh the negative stuff is whatever <laughs> yeah there's there's not a whole lot of guys out there that's there's haters for every brand there's not a lot of jail haters that's for sure all right well uh yeah anything else matt or we yeah, we're good to go. And right. again, I, I'm just, I think every stop that I've ever had as an installer, I've always been a JL dealer. Well, I've only it's worked like, for one JL dealer. I'm not a JL dealer now. Maybe when I feel I can support another brand, I will. Uh, you know my phone number. At the top of the list. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. We did work on a project uh, last year for Rob with you guys. Oh, that's right. Was, uh, of course. Yeah. Beautiful yeah, thing too. to dabble with those. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely some... Uh, <laughs> Some interesting stuff going on in that boat. Uh, that that marine woofer is uh, no joke. The twelve, no joke. Yeah, yeah, which is really like thirteen. Yeah. We're weird that way. I'm like, I, you know, I looked at Rob and uh, Matt. Matt does not know Rob, but Rob was what installer of the year 1981. No, it wasn't <laughs> quite that long ago, but um, did a boat for a guy I used to do stuff with. Uh, had all jail and i looked at it and i'm like oh yeah we, we'll just get the big one we'll get it in there no big deal it's and, big oh it was a nightmare we are going to make a smaller a one a smaller yeah. 12 you know more reasonable yeah but that nah, was cool it was i love a challenge so <laughs> fantastic cool all right well uh until next time uh thank you thank you and we'll hopefully see you in person you bet appreciate in it next in the next 365 yeah, hopefully we see you soon. Thanks, guys. Yeah. All, All right. right. Talk to you Take later. Care. Have a great night. Bye. And I-